The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. up everybody welcome back to another episode of the bootleg football podcast i am your host brett coleman here with my wonderful co-host ej snyder we are in part two of our 2021 nfl draft recap of oh i don't know 10 11 parts something like that this year we if you listen to the internet to they said 150 <laughs> so yeah. yeah it's we got a long way to go people but uh i'm i'm excited today we're doing our three favorite draft classes each and then after this episode uh we're going to be moving into our division by division breakdowns that i'm sure you're all familiar with also we have a fantastic interview later this episode with matt bowen which you really have to stay tuned and check out it, it's amazing he's amazing uh, i can't wait uh but before we get into all this ej buddy how you doing what are you drinking? I'm excited. It's, uh, you know, the draft is over, but now it's really starting to settle in. Which teams did well? Uh, they're starting to make those uh, post-draft additions to kind of fill in the holes. And you're starting to sort of see, you know, rookie mini camp happen. Started to see some pictures of guys in pads. It's coming back. Uh, football on the field again. So that's pretty exciting. I am drinking a local brewery, Silver City Brewery out of Paulsboro, Washington, and this is their Sonic Rain American Pale Ale, about 5.5 five by volume. Um, good, light, drinkable summer beer with enough flavor. I really like pales of late. Um, it's one of the styles that I think is getting a lot more attention lately, and it used to be just pales were just like flavorless and yellow, and now there's all sort of different flavor profiles uh, being put together, and Silver City does great stuff. What are you drinking? Uh, well, I just killed the last little bit that i had in this body a bottle of a uh, monkey shoulder my favorite blended scotch gave myself the most generous pour of all time as you can see so it's gonna be a long episode um i apologize if i'm a little bit out there by the end of it because this is a very generous pour but uh yeah monkey it's, shoulder it's is good week. stuff oh it's it's great I'm, stuff but it's i'm a, familiar it's with monkey shoulder that's that's tasty stuff it's good for mixing good for drinking straight so oh it's it's good for everything also makes a mean penicillin i'll just say that if you're ever making a penicillin use monkey shoulder and lafroy <laughs> float it's important it has to be lafroy i've been I was told just that by many a bartender 
okay i just thought you'd let it sit on your shelf for too long and we're making penicillin i was like i could think of a cheaper alternative but oh oh the drink penicillin got it uh why don't we get into these three favorite draft classes of ours and we have uh certain criteria i guess you could say it's not just you know who's picking at the top of every round obviously you're getting more higher valued players if you're picking early in the draft it's not quite that simple ej take us through what are our criteria for these countdowns of three apiece for our favorite teams yeah absolutely first thing it's subjective every time you look at a draft class everybody's going to have a different take on it and the bottom Bottom line is we don't really know for two or three years with the draft class. Grading a draft right after it happens is a bit like calling the tree you just planted and saying, nope, that thing's going to make the best fruit. Like, it might, but there's a lot that can happen between the time you plant it and the time you're harvesting that fruit. Same way with NFL draft classes. Two or three years, situation matters, injuries happen, all kinds of things can happen. So at first, it's subjective. And these are the drafts that we liked for a bunch of reasons. Player fits insane value consistency top to bottom was a big one for me uh, of the whole class and in a few years we'll see how they all pan out but these are the ones that as we were going through the draft or right after the draft concluded I look back you look back and we went oh man they just killed it like they killed it they got great fits for their team for their scheme for their coaches and they got good value all the way through there was a lot of drafts, and I'm just going to put it out there right now. Everybody's going to say, EJ, why didn't you talk about Chicago? Chicago was amazing. Chicago's kind of in its own class. If there's one team that had the largest change in the sort of overall tenor of their outlook, of their fan base, of their excitement from pre-draft to post-draft, it's Chicago hands down. <laughs> Going into the draft, Chicago had no answer at quarterback. Andy Dalton sort of holding the door for who knows what, nothing left. There was uncertainty at offensive tackle, and nobody was really excited for 2021. Everybody had kind of just said, nope, it's a throwaway year. You come out of the draft with Justin Fields and Tevin Jenkins. You're now set with a young quarterback, and young now looks to be left tackle. They're going to move Tevin to left. Totally different. Chicago ignites overnight. Everybody's excited about the season. Everybody's excited about the future. Everybody's excited about progress. Rest of the class was good, I think. Um but in terms of consistency overall, didn't make my list, didn't make your list. But that's why we're not talking about the Bears. They are the team with the biggest swing. And at the top, they hit it as strongly as anybody did. Um, but we'll get into some of the reasons we liked other classes a little bit better. But we didn't want Bears fans have been hitting me pretty hard on social media. <laughs> why didn't you why don't you talk more about the Bears draft? Look, they got Justin. If Justin works out, it's the best draft ever, period. End of story. You know, it's interesting is the number three team on my list. There was kind of opposite emotional swings because with the Bears fan base, it was a swing from unbelievable depression to yeah. unbelievable happiness. And then with, with Denver, who's actually my number three team, and I know even a lot of Broncos fans would disagree with me liking their draft this much because they passed on Justin Fields. There was the opposite swing of, oh my God, we're getting Justin Fields. You know, we don't have to deal with this whole Teddy Bridgewater versus Drew Locke thing. And then they passed on him. And there's a lot of Broncos fans that are still really pissed about that. But overall, oh, yes. I want to I sell this Broncos class. Because when you just look at, at the football players they took, the scheme fits, the talent values, you got Pat Sertan at nine overall, who's a great corner. 
You got Javante Williams in round two at pick 35 overall. Quinn Miners in round three at pick 98. Baron Browning comes off the board uh, a little bit later in round three at pick 105. Caden Stearns, safety out of Texas in round five. Jamar Johnson, a safety that you and I both really like a lot. Also in round five, they were just loading up on safeties. They got Seth Williams from Auburn, who's kind of a jump ball specialist, who weirdly uh, has a lot of highlights where jump balls get knocked away from him on SEC corner tape, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you got Kerry Vincent Jr., who's a talented corner out of LSU in round seven. Jonathan Cooper, who was a defensive end that went like three rounds later than I expected him to uh, in round seven. And then Marquise Spencer from Mississippi State, another defensive end for them. So overall, when you look at this class, Pat Sertan is going to fill that press corner role opposite of Kyle Fuller that Prince of Mukamara did for Vic Fangio. And it's a dream fit. You and I both think that, again, you could debate the quarterback thing all day long. There's rumors that they're convinced they're going to get Aaron Rodgers in a trade, which is why they passed on quarterback. I have no idea. I'm not going to speculate. But just looking at Patrick Sertan's fit in that defense, the talent for the value, I think they knocked it out of the park. That was one of the safest picks they could have made, and they made it. Javante Williams, again, I know it's a crowded backfield, but he's immediately, you could argue young Melvin Gordon versus Javante Williams. But Melvin Gordon, at this point in his career, I don't think it's close. I think Javante Williams is going to be the best running back in that backfield, and a hammer for them. Quinn Miners, an awesome interior lineman that could play guard or center for them. That's the thing is they didn't even need him, but they took him because he was just the best player there. So he'll compete with, you know, probably Cushenberry for center, maybe be a swing guard for them. Who knows? But either way, great value. Baron Browning, I actually think that he's not going to be Vic's new Roquan Smith. I think he's going to be Vic's new Leonard Floyd, which is a role that I actually like him a lot in. And I know they said we're going to start him inside, and if we need to move him outside, we'll move him outside. I think they're going to end up moving him outside, but I like him better there. And getting him in the fourth round, I think, is a good value for the athletic upside that he has in that role. A lot of people were saying he's going to be, you know, like the next Navarro Bowman. Absolutely not. Athletically, sure. Instincts-wise and technique-wise, no. But you put him in a Leonard Floyd role outside where he's moving backwards as much as he's moving forwards, you can sell me on that. Uh, and then Stearns and Johnson backing up both of their safeties they have there. They're not going to start, but if you're third and fourth safeties are Caden Stearns and Jabbar Johnson, you're sitting pretty. Uh, and then Jonathan Cooper is another one I want to highlight in round seven, who was one of my favorite kind of inside-out defensive ends, where you could put him on the edge. He plays the run really hard. He's got better hips than you think. Uh, but he's also a very talented interior rusher as well, which you saw a lot at the Senior Bowl. Uh, underrated power, underrated quickness, should not have gone in the seventh round. But overall, again, if you just want to ignore the present quarterback situation, because Lord knows what's going to happen there, the football players that they took, they killed it. Yeah, one through four, it's a very difficult draft to argue with outside of the quarterback issue. If you if you just take it with who they chose and not, oh, who they could have chosen, it should have been quarterback. Because again, we don't know who the opening day starter is going to be. Not speculating is probably a wise choice there. But <laughs> if you just look at Sertan, Williams, Miners, and Browning. And the other stuff, look, those are lottery tickets. Good lottery tickets. I think they took nice swings. I especially like Cooper as a value. But just the strength of that class in the top four 
is as strong as any class in the league outside of speculation about quarterback. And I have to thank the Broncos because if they hadn't taken Pat Sertan, no way Justin Fields ends up in Chicago. Yeah. No way. Because everybody had Sertan penciled in at number 10. And the first domino was, honestly, I'd say J.C. Horn with the Panthers. But yeah. when when the Broncos took Sertan, suddenly the Dallas pick was no longer a lock. They, they were willing out. to trade out. Another team was willing to trade up. They weren't after quarterback. And the dominoes started to fall that allowed Justin Fields to end up at Chicago. So thank you for that. But Sertan's a tremendous fit in that defense. He was my CB1 in this draft, I think with good reason. Now, I think J.C. Horn has a higher ceiling, but Sertan is the guy that is, I think, most complete in the role. And again, with that system fit, he has the best chance to succeed. If something goes wrong there, it's not because he doesn't have coaches that understand how to use his talent. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be injury or something else because that defense with he and fuller as the corners and their safeties is as strong a secondary as is going could you could put that up against any secondary in the league right now javante Mm -hmm. williams was my rb one so you get my corner one in round one my corner my running back two in round two or my running back one in round two minors like you said great value and then i love browning more than you did uh and i think again where he went that top four is just lockdown, lockdown work by them. Really, really strong. It's the best draft class that I've ever seen a fan base hate solely because <laughs> of what happened at quarterback. And I'm not, I'm not speaking for all Broncos fans. There's plenty of Broncos fans that agree with me and love the class, but there, man, there's a lot of Broncos fans that were like, pass on a quarterback, automatic fail. And I'm like, well, f- football's a little bit more complicated than that. You still got to have a good roster, and they have a really good roster. So, yeah. <laughs> now, why don't we take me to your number three team, which is one that I heavily considered putting on my list until I saw that you already put them. But I think you and I were in agreement of how much we love uh, what they're building there up in Detroit. Take me through the Lions. Yeah, this is a change. And again, sea change for the Lions in the offseason. New coach, new general manager. Uh, Never quite sure how that combination is going to work. It almost never works like the combination it's replacing because they got replaced for a reason. Things weren't going so well. New energy, new attitude, uh, new value system. And we got to see the new brain trust for the Lions come in. And throughout the weekend was... just really moved by how solid the class that they were putting together was lions had a lot of work to do they were not going to be one player away not even one year away they're probably two and a half good draft classes and some decent luck in free agency from being where they want to be they really were starting with a full rebuild and that's kind of a strange spot to be in the nfl these days there's all this reload stuff but not really ground up rebuilds this was a ground up rebuild after the matt patricia era and they start off by not looking a gift horse in the mouth and taking Penny Sewell round one pick seven. Uh, the the line that the Lions are putting together, four of their five starters are under twenty four and locked in for the next four years. They have, and and they just locked up Frank Ragnow long term as well. So they have a wall. They have built a wall in front of whoever's going to play quarterback. That's Jared Goff for right now. If they go out and get a quarterback next year he's going to have 
all the protection in the world, and that's a great way to start. They'll build weapons around. But they really started with Sewell not trying to do something cute, saying, hey, this is a player we need. We need players everywhere. It's kind of an advantage of a rebuild. There's not too many positions where you're like, no, no, we're set. We'll go for value somewhere else. It's like, this is the best player on the board. We need him. We're taking him. So Pene Sewell has been talked about at length. Probably don't need to go into who he is as a player. Um, and then in round two, pick 41, they get Levi on Rizrique out of out of Washington. Defensive tackle, penetrator, guy we like, who I think can probably play at a higher level in their scheme because he's going to see less straight three-man rushes. For once. A lot of t- yeah. <laughs> yes. So we saw him at the Senior Bowl. He performed really well against top talent. Another guy that had opted out. But... They came right back in round three and got Aleem McNeil, who was the guy that was really in the running to sort of compete with Levi in this draft as the three-tech penetrator, guy that can really get upfield and create a lot of havoc. Um, Now they have them both. And at that point, it was a little bit more clear to me, oh, okay, now we know what they're going to do. They're probably Mm going to play those guys side by side. They're looking at a penetrating one gap upfield penetrating defensive line. This is what they're going to build up front. They already have built their offensive line. They're building from the inside out. This is a fairly classic NFL model. And I started to say, okay, all right. They're just, they're just sticking and staying, right? They're taking value as it comes down their board and they're building from the inside out. They follow that up in round three with a big corner out of Syracuse, Melifonwu. Um, not many guys at his size move like he does. And you, we kind of liked their corner talent before, um, their top pick from last year underperformed wildly underperformed. I think that was more of a scheme and coaching fit. He really didn't, he didn't gel with what Patricia and his staff were doing. It's not a bad player. Jeffrey Akuda, a very good player. And I think we're going to see a serious, you can call it a rebound. I think he's just much more comfortable in the system. They're going to put together. You add Melifonwu some of their other defensive assets in that secondary. You put more defensive line assets in front of it, which they did in the two rounds before that. And you start to see, okay, this is this is a defense that they're adding basically high skill positions, high value skill positions. They come back in round four. They definitely need wide receivers. They only had one before they started into free agency with Quintez Cephas. They had Amon Ross St. Brown out of USC. I think he adds a slot element for them. He can play outside, but they have players that are going to play outside there. Um, he's at worst their wide receiver four. You and I both think he's probably going to end up as wide receiver three because he plays inside a little bit more than the guys they have. I think he's going to see a lot of opportunities, and we've seen, to your point, Jared Goff be very comfortable with slot receivers coming from L.A. Mm-hmm. He used all four of his wide receivers. He would rotate throughout the weeks of the season. Different guys would be highlighted in the game plan. He has no problem distributing the ball. So that speaks pretty well for St. Brown. Then they come back and get one of the sneakiest picks of the whole draft. Derek Barnes, linebacker out of Purdue. Guy I loved. Uh, as soon as I saw his Senior Bowl tape, I watched him before the Senior Bowl, but his performance at the Senior Bowl, he had some really good coverage reps. He's got great physical dimensions. And typically saw him ranked in the 200s which i thought was way too low i thought yeah 150 is probably about where i'd value him yeah that's really low (laughs) but all boards almost across the board even at the end of the process he'd only snuck up to maybe 180 185 on some boards still terribly undervalued for a really versatile player lions pick him up say we're gonna put him in the middle they say he's our mike 
He's a smart player. He's versatile. We love what he brings. They pick him at 114 overall, which is was a little rich, I think, but I love the fit. I love where he's going. I love the staff's plan for him. So all those things sort of make that a really solid choice, even if it seemed a little bit early to fans. And then they come back in round seven to pick 257 and get Jamar Jefferson. And mm. I love him running back out of Oregon State. Again, I, you can get running backs late that are valued. It's not like he needs to start. They they have their starter. They picked him high last year. I think he's going to ascend. on Johnson gets released right after the draft. Never could get right after injuries. I think Jamar Jefferson could surprise some people. There's already reports out of minicamp that he looked a little bit quicker than we thought he was for a seventh rounder. And if you watch his tape, that's not surprising. I think he can be RB2. Just a great class top to bottom when we get to the divisional preview we're going to talk about who they added in udfa which was significant to kind of further enhance the value of the class and really sell that we're building something new and you have an opportunity to make this team and possibly start um they seem to have leveraged that message with this draft class really really well so kind of a plus marks for a first class. They just really didn't have any missteps top to bottom. When I'm talking about consistency of the class, liked every player they picked. They had a plan, stuck to it, got value, and honestly made their team quite a bit better in what was their first sort of turn, you know, turn at the wheel. And that's all you can ask out of a new staff. I was a little, I have to say as a Bears fan, I was slightly distressed. It was always, <laughs> it was always good to have Patricia and his staff just throwing random darts that you didn't think were going to work out. And you really, you didn't fear them that much. This is logical. It makes sense. They have a plan. They made their team a lot better. That's, you know, after a couple more years of this, that's going to be really concerning. You know, I think it, how they're building their team is a very similar to way, a very similar way to how they built around Jared Goff in LA, which is if you don't have an elite quarterback, you better be elite in the trenches on both sides of the ball, because a great quarterback can make up for an average to below average offensive line in certain ways, especially if they're mobile. But a great offensive line can make up to make up for an average quarterback by giving him a shitload of time to throw, especially if he's not that mobile like Jared Goff. And when Jared Goff was at his best in L.A., it's when that offensive line was firing on all cylinders back in 2018, I think it was, before they ran into that buzzsaw in Chicago and got exposed a little bit. And then Belichick ran basically the same game plan and beat him in the Super Bowl. But again, that offense was great because their offensive line was great. And Todd Gurley was, you know, had somewhat healthy knees at, at that point. And so I think Detroit... Um, you know, is copying that model of like, hey, we've got Jared Goff, who if you give him good protection, he's an accurate trigger man who can work a bunch of different receivers and play point guard for you. He doesn't have to be special if you're able to run the ball really well and protect really well if you get into a, a third and long situation occasionally. So I really love that they're building to their quarterback's strengths and mostly weaknesses. And then on defense, the defensive line, or really the front seven that they're building to complement a bunch of young secondary talent that you and I still believe in, and that I think Aaron Glenn specifically, who's coming over to be their DC, he was the DB coach for the Saints the last four years and was a phenomenal one at that, one of the best secondary coaches in the league. 
And, you know, we've seen um, Okuda already talk about how much he, how much he's learned from Aaron Glenn just barely knowing the guy. Same guy who developed Marshawn Lattimore, by the way, another Ohio State corner. So I think their secondary is going to be fine. They have a, long, a lot of young talent there already. But what they've done to the front seven, bringing in Levi, bringing in McNeil, Derek Barnes, who I had a, a chat with Jim Nagy before the draft, and I was talking about Barnes and how much I liked him, how versatile he was as a pass rusher, how he'd basically be like a, um, a Dante Hightower type player. And the line that he said that stuck with me is, however high you think Derek Barnes is going, it's going to be higher. And he was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. Uh, and so, again, is he going to be a guy that's going to be great in coverage? No, but he's going to do everything else really, really well. Rush the passer, stop the run, be in the right place at the right time. Like, they are building with their quarterback in mind, knowing who Jared Goff is. Like, they traded for Jared Goff knowing who Jared Goff is, and they built their roster around that, and I think they did a phenomenal job at it. Yeah, one thing about Barnes is coverage in the short area, really between the hashes in the box, he's good. Is he going to cover, you know, ex-speedy slot receiver on a straight man crosser? No, he's not. Can he drape the sort of less mobile tight end? Yeah, he can. And that's something I think they're going to use for versatility. And yeah, you you build a line. Like, I don't think Jared Goff's ever had a tight end as good as Hawkinson, right? That's going to be his new best friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you add complimentary receivers. You sign a couple in free agency. You draft one. You bring a couple in in UDFA. You just kind of try and make a receiving core that has a lot of options because you know he can be a distributor. You've already got the strong line. We know you can get running assets. They already have a, a very highly drafted running back. Now they go and get some other running assets to complement that. Um, they're they're building a, a functional system that doesn't depend on Jared Goff playing hero ball, which is a really smart approach. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's a similar type of deal for my number two team, the New York Jets, where they're not really putting a whole lot on Zach Wilson early, which I think is great for Wilson's development. You know, obviously they're investing a very high pick in Wilson, but when you look at the supporting structure they're putting around him and the offense that they're going to be running, which is a very run-heavy system, we're assuming, especially with the offensive line they're building, he's not going to have to do everything like, say, Joe Burrow had to do everything as a rookie for Cincinnati and Justin Herbert at times had to do everything for the Chargers to make them functional. It's not going to be the same type of same type of ordeal for Zach Wilson. So let me run through this Jets class because I really, really loved it. Again, Zach Wilson at number two, was he my number two quarterback? No. That doesn't mean that I don't think that he wasn't worth the pick, if that makes sense. Like there's four guys that you could have argued worth top two picks in this class. So just because he wasn't my QB two, which was Justin Fields, and then Trey Lance was my QB3. He was my QB4 that went QB2, but again, it's splitting hairs. It's more about where you end up in situation that I think determines the success for these guys, not just my pre-draft rankings. So again, if he works out, that this draft is already a home run. And I think you could ask the Chiefs to confirm that because you look at their 2017 class and pretty much everybody outside of Pat Mahomes didn't work out for him. But they got Pat Mahomes, so that's a, su- a successful class. If Wilson works out, this is a good class for them. But then they traded back up from 23 to 14 to get Elijah Vera Tucker. Heavily criticized pick because they gave up extra assets to get a guard. 
I personally am of the belief that there weren't that many guards, maybe two in this whole class that have Vera Tucker's skill set, which is a perfect fit for the offense they want to run. If you want to run a lot of outside zone, you need guards that can reach block a three technique all by themselves without any help from the tackle. You need to have a guy that can locate and track a speedy 215-pound linebacker on the second level and actually make that block. Elijah Vera Tucker can do that. Not a whole lot of guards can, and they knew that. For as much depth as there is on the interior, you have to factor in system, and he's one of the few guards that really fits what they want to do in that system. So I was totally fine with picking him at 14. You get Elijah Moore in the top of the second round. I mean, my God. That's an incredible value. Uh, Michael Carter in round four, because remember they gave up the third rounders for Elijah Vera Tucker, but you come back and you get a, a running back that you could have argued gone 40 picks ahead of that, and you get him in round four. Who cares that you gave up the third rounders? You're still getting a third round talent, if not better, in Michael Carter in round four. Disgusting pick. You get Jamie and Sherwood and then in, in round five, and then one round later you get Hamza Nasraldine, who I think are basically going to be the same guy for them which is Jeff Ulbrich doing the most Jeff Ulbrich thing ever, which is like, hey, find me this 215 to 220-pound lanky linebacker with 34-inch arms, and I'll make it work. Is he a former safety? That's a bonus. I'll make it work, because he's done that many, many, many times at this point. Like, he has a type for linebacker, which is, I don't want to say smaller, but more compact, range, fast, you know, slippery off blocks. Like, that is Sherwood and Nasraldine. Sherwood's a little bit faster. Nasraldine's a little bit longer. But, again, that that's very much in that Ulbrich mold of smaller, quicker linebacker, which he's done before with Deion Jones, Eric Kendricks. The list goes on and on. Love those two picks back-to-back. One of them will probably work out. Uh, Michael Carter, who's probably going to be a special teams guy, maybe work his way in as a nickel, but I probably expect special teams. Uh, Jason Pinnock. I mean, good Lord, you and I loved him, and he's like a perfect fit at boundary corner for them. I mean, he's – if you were going to like say who's the most Seahawky player in this draft, Jason Pinnock would have been my answer. Like he's such a perfect fit for like press boundary corner. Salah's going to love him in that role. Uh, and then you got Brandon Nichols, who's – again, he's probably going to special teamer. And then John Marshall, twitched up athlete, uh, him going that late, in round six for his athleticism. Like I understand he's raw as all get out, but an athlete like him with an RAS of like nine, eight or something like that going in the sixth round is pretty nuts. So overall, again, you could have just stopped at Zach Wilson. And I thought this class would have been good, but you throw in the best guard in the class, uh, a top four to five receiver, uh, you know, a, a absolutely dynamic running back, the DBs they got, the linebackers they got, the Jets murdered this draft, and I think even if they have a 30% hit rate, it's a transformational class for them. Yeah, it sets them up for success. Again, a new staff, a lot like the Lions, different mentality. And you talked about fit, right? Fit and scheme. And would I be anywhere near as excited if Sherwood had gone most other places in this draft? Nah, he goes with Ulbrich, and you know that they're going to slide him forward and let him do what he does, which is sort of range in that forward short cone in the box and knock the snot out of people. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, actually. Homs is, again, a clone of that 
Elijah Moore was one of my favorites from early on. I turned you on to him like after probably my second piece of tape. I was like, this this guy's yeah. gonna be in my top five receivers. No I, I hadn't I, even I hadn't even got to receivers yet, and you like sent me a text at like eleven thirty at night. It just said Elijah Moore. And I was like, what? And you're like, I love Elijah Moore. No, that's anybody. it. I'm driving the bus, <laughs> hop on. Like I was early in my receiver work and I was like, it doesn't matter how many more I do, I'm not gonna see more guys like this. Right? Like he just has all those things. Talked at length about more. We don't need to go into that again. But you pair him with one of the other guys that we really liked that we got to see at the senior bowl last year in Mims. Now you got Mims and Moore. You got Carter, who's extremely dynamic. Um, Javante Williams' backfield made at UNC. Gives Wilson, again, weapons to where he doesn't have to play hero ball every week. You want to see him do that a little bit. You want to see the play break down and him be able to do what he was able to do at BYU, which is play outside structure. But you don't want that to be the norm, right? Like you said, not the heavy lift that Burrow had of anything that's going to happen is going to be on your shoulders. No, you'd like playmakers to make some plays. So you put a bunch of playmakers around him. Pinnock is a crazy value. I think about Pinnock developing, and he does need to develop, but he just has so many gifts that you get like him and Bryce Hall eventually as the boundary corners there. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm I, all right I, with I, that. <laughs> yeah, and you know Marcus May, they're negotiating with him at safety right now to see if they can get him long term. They have your other favorite safety out of Cal. All of a sudden, that secondary with Salah in charge of it starts to look like very powerful in that division and, and not anywhere near a knockoff or a knockover. Um, the offensive line is solid and getting better. I know a lot of people went after the Vera Tucker pick, but we had Brandon Thorne on as our first pre-draft guest and he loved AVT. Like mm-hmm. he was like, he's either for me, he's a guard first because that's where his best skill set is. And he will crush as a guard like if you put him as a guard he's not going to be good he's going to crush and it was I think, like oh, uh okay I think at, at guard he had him as like 12th overall in, in this class like he it was loved he had him, him really high yeah he really had him high. like tackle four or five sorry brandon if i'm getting your rankings wrong but he had him as guard like one or two like right yeah. at the top he was like nope he's He's, again, like you said, one of the few players in this class that's a difference maker at that spot. And that's why they went and got him. It's their belief. And it's not like they sacrificed everything else to be able to do it. They still filled out the rest of the class with a lot of value and players that we like in their system. So, again, top to bottom consistency, value, fit with scheme, the chance, best chance to develop players like Sherwood. Whereas if he'd gone somewhere else, I would have been like, eh, it seems early, no matter when he got picked. Now I'm like, oh, I know what they're going to do with him and I know who they're going to have do it to him. So yeah, yeah, I'm good. That's, that's a solid pick in that system. So the Jets, again, new staff, uh, not a new GM, but a new coaching staff um, seem to align pretty strongly on vision uh, and be in this on the same page about what we're doing on offense, what we're doing on defense, what kind of players we want, and get value really top to bottom. So I'm with you. 30% hit rate out of this class, and Wilson being average or above means the New York Jets did really well for their franchise. Now, one team that's strung together a few very strong drafts back to back to back uh, which is your number two team. This one, to me, felt like one of the classes in the NFL where it was just the rich getting richer. Every single time the Cleveland Browns made a pick, 
you and I just looked at each other and said, the value, my God. Like they, like, they didn't even need half these guys, but they just went after value. And why don't you take us through this class, because you and I were ecstatic every single time the Browns were on the clock. Yeah, they're building something in Cleveland. They had a very talented roster, which was um, a, a perfect accident, right? They were bad years and years in a row so they ended up with high draft pick after high draft pick they ended up with all this talent but they couldn't really put it together and they finally bring in a new gm they get some front office stability they bring in stefanski last year to kind of say all right how are you going to bring all these insanely talented pieces together and he does it right by late in the season the browns are hitting on all cylinders there's an incredibly talented roster we talked about it in our divisional preview last summer like if they light the match, they have as much talent on this roster as anybody in the NFL, top to bottom. That roster's still there for the most part. They didn't have incredible losses. They're not that wildly successful team that breaks up after the Super Bowl, uh, as most teams do, as long as you're not the Buccaneers and bring everybody back. <laughs> but oh, they haven't God. started that phase of, of their team building where they're losing insane amounts of talent. They still have all that talent. So your point about the fact that they didn't need half these guys is absolutely there but Andrew Barry man he just kept the hammer down he was like I'm gonna go with value I'm gonna go with fit I'm gonna keep doing the same thing and just keep the coffers full as guys do start to rotate out and they do let them go for comp picks like their divisional rivals the Ravens do and they start off in round one staying true to their board getting one of the top four corners at pick 26 Greg Newsom out of Northwestern um <laughs> Super confident corner. I know those things usually go together, but he throughout the process said, "I'm CB one. I don't care. I don't care what you say about JC Horn. Like you love to see that competition wise, especially going up against oh the Steelers wide receiver core. Yeah, so seriously, tremendous ad for them. The one player last year we said, man, if Ceh goes to the Chiefs, it's over. And the one player that we kind of got together on in the pre-draft process and said, man, if there's a guy that goes to a place that sort of fits need and value and just lets a team do something they can't right now, it's Jeremiah Usu-Koromoda to the Browns, right? And then oh. they didn't pick him in round one. And we were like, ah, they're not going to get him. He's going to go top round two before they pick again. Well, no, he doesn't. Round two, pick 52, they add JOK at what was largely a gaping hole. They've let a couple linebackers go. They haven't all-world defensive line they have a tremendous secondary which they added to in free agency like the front and the back of that defense are incredibly strong the linebackers were kind of if there was a eh, part on the roster and they add one of the most if not the most dynamic linebacker in the draft at pick 52 and we look at each other and go oh man like we said if he ended up there we didn't think he would and now he does um tremendous pick by that staff uh you know, round three was kind of my only quibble. Anthony Schwartz, wide receiver out of Auburn. My least favorite pick in their hall doesn't mean, again, it was a bad pick. Kind of like what you said about Zach Wilson, my quarterback four being picked two doesn't mean he's bad. Like, I understand the plan for Schwartz. He has 
world-class speed. He has angle-breaking speed. And he's not just a track star. Like, he understands how to translate that to the football field, and he can go the distance. He is a guy that's going to absolutely stretch defenses that they're going to be able to use in creative ways. Stefanski showed uh, no aversion to being <laughs> creative, pulling out the the trickeration, right? And Anthony Schwartz has a, has a role in that for them that's going to be pretty threatening because if you miss... He's gone. He has that yeah. kind of speed. James Hudson, a guy I liked on tape but tested pretty poorly, had a decent senior bowl, and they get him in round four, pick 110, as, again, he doesn't need to start for them. He's kind of their swing tackle, right? And he just can develop and and hopefully hone what we saw on tape to be a more complete game. The rich getting richer is a very good way to describe that pick. One of my defensive gems stays in-state. Tommy Togiai, defensive tackle, Ohio State. They get him in the fourth round at 132. I love him. And going into that defensive line rotation, it's it, that's obscene. Much like, later I, than I thought he would go to. I thought he was like round, like early round three, maybe late three at most. There so was, was a whisper right before the draft started that the medical information in general, for the whole class, to the league, for for follow-ups, had come out late. Like, some teams were getting it literally six or seven days before the draft, and there was a whisper. I think it might have been Daniel Jeremiah that said, defensive tackle got hit extremely hard. Like, watch for Mm. the effects on defensive tackle, right? And we ended up seeing Marvin Wilson from Florida State go undrafted. That was a shocker after his 2019 tape. Guys like Togiai sliding down the board a full round later than we thought they would. And I wonder if that didn't have something to do with it. Uh, but Togiai on that defensive line is just another versatile, penetrating, hard playing, down eating guy that can make plays. Um, and then one of my favorite picks round five, one thirty-five. I described Tony fields out of West Virginia as the poor man's JOK in this draft. Like I said, if you miss on JOK, go get Tony fields. You're going to get 80, 85% of his game. He's a, I described him as a Wolverine because he's ferocious and <laughs> annoying and they add him. They got JOK and then they add Tony Fields, So they got JOK and his, you know, either eventual running mate or his automatic backup either way they're just stacking talent after talent um they get richard lecount a guy that was injured played great on sec Mm. tape tested terribly but it was because he was in a motorcycle accident he was injured he wasn't fully recovered andrew barry goes i'll take the wild card fifth round 169 overall that guy had great tape and was in the right place a lot of times against SEC offenses. Made a lot. You want to know plays. a note? I, yeah, I, take I it. Can't, I can't remember if you were in the draft stream at, at this time, um, but on LeCount, because I, whatever episode it was before the draft, you and I both said there's no way, there is no universe in, in which Richard LeCount <laughs> runs four eight. It's no. not possible. He doesn't run four eight. Not on film. With all the with all the plays he made in the SEC, zero chance he runs four eight. Everybody that I know loved him. And so I was on my little phone texting my buddy. And my little phone. They, they threw out the 40s for a lot of guys. Sure. And they were instead going off GPS, uh, GPS data. <laughs> and they have statistical models with the Browns because they're very analytic focused. And they take advantage of current technology because they're a smart organization now. Uh, and they have models that projects 
acceleration rate, long speed, and everything like that to basically just figure out what a, a healthy 40 would be. And he was timing, quote-unquote, timing in the low four fives, which sounds a, a lot more mm-hmm. accurate when you just watch him on tape where it's like, that dude can move. He's running down sweeps to, you know, Devontae Smith, who is also very, very fast, with no problem. He's making plays from opposite numbers all the way to the other numbers as a single high safety. He's got range. Nobody runs 4.8 that has that kind of range. And so they looked at, at their GPS data and said, nah, he's more like 4.52, somewhere around there. And I was like, all right, I believe that. And for him, who's going to fully recover from that motorcycle accident eventually, uh, A, credit to him for still testing at the pro day despite not even being close to 100% and knowing that it might tank his draft stock, which it did. So credit for LeCount being still competitive, but also credit to the Browns for knowing that those numbers were bullshit and just drafting a really good football player based off GPS data. This is a new era of scouting. In a lot of years, he would have gone undrafted because we didn't have GPS data. Now we do, and it it gave the Browns a very good football player. Absolutely. This is a guy that, you know, even if you told me he ran 4-6, I'd be like, I don't care. (laughs) Look at all the plays he made when he was healthy on tape. He's got good length. He's got great intuition, which makes up at least a tenth for safeties, like knowing where you need to go and getting the extra half step on a break because you understand the ball is going there a half second before most guys do. LeCount's got that. He's got great length. And again, he's a good athlete. He made a ton of plays in the SEC, which is loaded with athletes. All the top playmakers that we're talking about that got drafted up high. SEC guys, right? LeCount made plays in that league over and over again. Not once. Like, he was a playmaker in that defense. So a crazy steal by Cleveland that late. And then they go get another guy that tested really poorly but had a great senior bowl in Demetric Felton. I just put offensive Mm -hmm. weapon out of UCLA because they ran him as a running back. He played more wide receiver at the senior bowl. doesn't really matter where you line him up, but he is one of those guys that can win off the line as a wide receiver with just releases and quickness. Nobody could keep with him the whole week in Mobile. And they get him in round six to 11 because he is undersized and he tested incredibly poorly. But again, if you look at the tape, you look at him play against competition, he is a very difficult player to get a handle on. You want some fun. Go watch his game against Washington State. Like, oh my God, they had (laughs) no answers for him. None. He just did whatever he wanted on the football field against them. And I I can't wait to see Stefanski use that as just like the eighth wild card in his back pocket on that offense and be like, Hey, Demetri, come here. I got one for you. Okay. Just do this, right? We're going to run reverse statue of Liberty and you're going to be the guy. Right? Oh, it's going <laughs> to, it's going to happen at least once. Cause Stefanski and his staff showed a real, um, aggressiveness in that play calling. Like once a week, they came up with something that was like, what? Okay. And Felton's going to get one of those this year. Probably not more than a couple, but he's going to get one of those this year. And, it he's going to take it away is because he's a tough guy to track down. So again, you start with a team that's pretty loaded top to bottom was starting to compete really at the highest level of football at the end of last year was involved in what I would, what you and I both thought was the game of the year. So one of those teams that trends solidly late, those teams often are set up for success the next year, not a ton of losses, a ton of great additions, especially where they had needs 
Andrew Barry and his stat. I I swear I've joked right after the draft. I said, man, you better get better get working on that Barry statue because you're going to need it like pretty quick. And if they keep putting in drafts like this, I'm I'm not hardly kidding. I mean, it is going to happen. After they picked Felton, I texted my buddy and I asked him, "Do you want him at running back or receiver?" And he sent back, "Does it have to be one?" Yeah, <laughs> that that's how it's going to be. Like they're going to line up, yeah, you know, with him as a slot receiver because he'd be a great slot receiver. Uh, you know, defenses are going to respond with nickel because there's no linebacker in the league other than maybe like three of them that you would trust to cover him in the slot and safeties as well. And all of a sudden they're going to put him in the backfield and put Kareem Hunt at fullback. And all of a sudden they're running ISO with Kareem Hunt at fullback. Cause he can do that against nickel and you're fucked. Like they're going to mess with people with Felton. Cause he can do either or again, this whole, this whole class, like every single time they made a pick, we knew exactly why they did it. There was not a single head scratcher for me out of the entire class. There's a clear identity with this team. And everything that, that Cleveland already did well got better, and everything that they didn't do well also got better. Like, this was a home run class from start to finish. I'm not going to say that they're a shoe-in for the AFC North crown, but, man, Baltimore and Pittsburgh, they, <laughs> they're going to have a, 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 a tough fight on their hands every single time Cleveland comes to town because they don't have any weaknesses. There's not a single weakness on this entire roster. No. And they made some of their strengths stronger. You and I were talking about this. We were looking at their cornerback depth, right? (laughs) And we're like, "Mm, is your honestly with their free agent additions, is their third safety Grant Delpit? Yeah. (laughs) Right. If your third safety is a guy that was projected to be the top safety in last year's draft, like that's your rotational guy. And that's how this draft looks all the way around with maybe the exceptional linebacker because they were kind of thin there. But like Tommy Togia is what your fifth defensive line, sixth defensive line. I mean, yeah, because you got, you got Billings and Jordan Elliott. You got Malik Jackson. They signed Malik McDowell because why the fuck not? Like, take a shot. Three. Who cares? He's a freak of nature. Like, if he, if hey, he everybody's makes the coming roster... back. We got, we got TiVo. We got Kevin Benjamin. Take a shot on Malik. Why, why not? Kelvin Benjamin, the tight end now, by the way. Well, I, I have jokes, but I'm just going to leave them. I'm just saying, I think it's a good career move for him. I'd rather him be tight end. I mean, honestly, I wanted him to be at tight end for most of his career as a receiver anyway. So, sure thing. You know. And good for him for having the mental toughness to get over what he – or not get over, but get through what he had to get through in his life and trying to make it back in the league. Good on you, Kelvin Benjamin. Just random note there. Um, I want to go to my number one team here, and it was tough. It was tough for all, all these teams because you could argue a bunch of them for number one. But when I look at what the Miami Dolphins did, I mean, we talk about, you know, first four picks <laughs> – if you start out your draft with Jalen Waddle, Jalen Phillips, Javon Hollum, and Leon Eikenberg, you can make no other picks for the rest of the draft and go home happy. But then, on top of that, adding Hunter Long, Larnell Coleman, and, and Garrett Dokes, who's – or is it Garrett or Jared? I never actually knew because when you watch on All-22, they don't say his name. So I apologize. Yeah, it's terrible when it's correctly. silent. I would say Jared if I had to venture a guess, but it is a guess. The thing that stuck out with me for him, pass protection. Like, that dude is a dog. 
in pass protection. And I think they brought they brought him in solely for special teams. And you're going to be our dude that you bring in on third down to pass protect for Tua and then check release if nobody comes because he's really, really good at that. Not so great at everything else, but he's already probably the best backfield pass protector on the roster, in my opinion. But, you know, going through the rest of, of who they brought in, Jalen Waddell, dynamic, dynamic, dynamic receiver. Uh, whether he's working as a deep threat, whether it's getting the ball in space on screens, giving him carries, whatever you want to do with him. I mean, he can score from literally anywhere else on the field. And I know people say, don't compare anybody to Tyreek Hill. Tyreek is a unicorn. I agree. But in terms of physical skill set, acceleration, like just pure acceleration, Waddle's one of the closest guys to Tyreek in the league. And Tyreek might be one of, I don't know, two guys that have better acceleration than Waddle, and that's still stretching it. Like, it is rare, 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 rare bursts. I know that Ruggs timed 4-2. You know, he had the long speed and everything like that. But in terms of, like, the first 15 yards, who's getting up to their top speed the fastest? It is Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle. And that's probably why he went ahead of Devontae Smith, because a lot of coaching staffs say, like, just give me the dude that has the rare physical skill set. And his burst is that rare where it comes along maybe once every like four or five years. The last guy to come out that had it was probably Tyreek. So just on, on pure rarity of skill set, Jalen Waddle was worth that pick at number six. And then you get Jalen Phillips, who was my number one edge rusher, uh, all the way down at pick 18. I did not think he was going to get that far. I had him going, I think, number 11 to the Giants in my mock draft. So he slid probably because of medical, but... He's much better than the 18th overall pick. Like, in any normal year, I don't think that he would have gone that late. Because when you look at length, strength, bend, technique, motor, like, he's got everything. He has everything you want in an edge rusher. And and getting him that late solely because of medical is lucky for Miami. It's flat-out luck that he was there. So I love that pick for them. And then you get uh, Javon Holland, who immediately... (laughs) immediately you're projecting him as Devin McCourty in that defense because he's got that same skill set as somebody who can play post safety or play nickel corner for you, which McCourty did for Flores in New England. He played both. Holland is going to be that guy where depending on game plan for the week, hey, if we want to play mostly like single high, you're going to be our post safety because you can do it. Uh, Or if we really need you at nickel, we're going to put you at nickel because you can do it. So I love that pick for them. And then Liam Eikenberg, solid as you can get for a day two tackle prospect. You slide him to right tackle. You put Robert Hunt inside, which they were reported before the draft to be moving Robert Hunt inside. And again, the the offensive line isn't flashy, but I don't see any weaknesses there either. And for an offense that wants to get the ball out in under two and a half seconds anyway to a guy like Jalen Waddle that can make stuff happen with yards after the catch because he's so freaking dynamic – you can kind of see where everything is coming together here. It's quick game. It's running the ball. It's making sure that Tua doesn't have to do too much. Uh, and then you play really good defense with everything they got on the back end. I mean, God, Miami's loaded. Again, it's, it's just like Cleveland where they have no weaknesses on the roster with the one asterisk being maybe if Tua doesn't work out, that's the one thing you can question. But we still don't know, but in terms of everything else on the roster, like it is 
probably one of the five or six best top to bottom talented rosters in the entire league. Yeah, their top three really was the piece for me. Their depth later down is the reason I didn't pick them as one of my top three classes. But those top three choices were, and, and if you're going to be good in the draft, you got to hit on your high choices. Typically, your ones and twos, but threes can add a lot of value. And then there's guys like Ryan Pace who do really well consistently with threes and fours and fives specifically. But if you're not hitting on the ones and twos, um, it doesn't much matter. And that, you know, Jalen, Jalen, and Javon, that was it for me. Like, I mm-hmm. was like, you got three really good players, three players I liked as the top one or two at their position in the draft. Right. I like Richie Grant at safety and Javon Holland was right there. Right. Trevin Morig, like those three guys were the the three guys that I felt like had versatility, all had corner like skills. Um, really, Richie Grant and Javon Holland played more of true sort of corner lineups than Merrick did. But those are the three guys that I was like, any one of those three can fit kind of any system because they can all play single high deep. They're fast enough to play man, and two of them literally have corner reps on their resume that look really good. Mm-hmm. So you go out, and again, Jalen Phillips, one of the top edge rushers, if you're, if you're comfortable with his medical, he had a greater package of all the things you were talking about, about hustle, skill, drive, moves, combination, production. Like He was definitely one of the top players as long as you're okay with the medical. And then Waddle, you know, everything you said about him as a wide receiver and a crazy dynamic special teams threat, like Mm -hmm. a guy that can absolutely split one off. You don't have to miss by much and he is going to make you pay and you're not going to catch him because of that speed. So um, just those top three Eichenberg, not really sure about their plan. I'm with you. He's not flashy. You and I watched him about a week before the draft. We watched the whole uh, Notre Dame offensive line because there were so many guys that were getting drafted off that line again and just kind of picked and picked and choose our sort of favorite plays. And Eikenberg's one of those guys that he feels better at guard to me. Sure, you can play him at tackle. I'm with you that right is probably better than left because that little bit of lack in length sort of stuck with me. But again, is he a bad player as your fourth pick? He's not. Can he contribute and play in a couple of spots or three spots on the offensive line if you need him to? He can. Is that a bad thing? No, you've loaded the roster to the point where you don't necessarily need him. But, uh, you know, the top strength of that draft is just primo. Like, you got great value you added to positions of strength in case of the defensive line. They had a, a very good defensive line rotation last year. They needed more weapons. They went after that with Waddle up high. Obviously, he's already familiar with Tua, so you should have a, a quicker sort of speed to proficiency there with him getting up to speed in that offense. And then Holland gives them a dynamic threat deep in the third of the field that they could use. It's, you know... It, that team was in good straights before and just got stronger. You know, I'm I'm looking right now, and I I don't think that they traded down at all, if, or at least in like the first four or five picks, which is kind of opposite of your number one team, which constantly traded down with the Carolina yeah. Panthers. You know, the Dolphins kind of took the opposite approach and, and did a whole stick and pick thing. But Carolina, I mean, 
God, they they every single pick they had seemed like it was for sale. Yeah, no, there was a lot of speculation to your point about Miami, and Miami's going to be the big mover, and Miami has all this capital. They can move up. They can move down. They can, you know, and to your point, they were pretty static. They stayed, said, we see value, we're picking it. The Panthers, on the other hand, didn't. And this is Scott Fitterer, the GM of the Panthers, and I was fascinated. This was a pattern that developed throughout the draft. Now, the Panthers traded traded five times. That's a, that's a franchise record for them. It, it beat the record of four, which was their previous record. And the whole concept is brought not actually by their GM, but by their owner. So they have a new owner who made a ton of money in business and is applying that filter of continuous improvement to all areas and said, so, so what's your, what's your plan? What's your lens? How do you view this thing? What's your strategy for how you're going to use these assets that the NFL gives us every year in draft picks and how can we maximize them? And they were like, well, now we need to take a sort of top down look at our draft strategy. And this is a strategy that I am personally attached to because I believe in it. Like I personally believe in my core that the draft is an uncertain exercise. You can reduce a bunch of the uncertainty, but you can't reduce all of it. There is no way to do that. And that means you just need more swings. More swings is better anytime you can get them. And there's a value balance, right? You don't trade a first round pick and turn it into 5,000 seventh round picks and say, I got the same value, right? You have to weigh each one. But every time what the Panthers did throughout the weekend is weigh their board versus the value of trading down. Their bias was trade down. If there's another guy of equal or very close value, I'll take the picks. They did it five times. So they started out with 8, 39, 73, 113, 191, 193, and 222. So that's seven picks. They ended up with 12 total picks, including a fourth rounder that they picked up next year, which is one in the first, one in the second, two in the third, two in the fourth, one this year, one next year, two in the fifth, three in the sixth, and one in the seventh, 12 overall picks, so more swings, and they used it with their board, which was my favorite, and this is a strategy I've employed in mock drafts for years, so to actually watch it play out in real life for all the marbles, I was transfixed. After day two, when really they hung up the we're open for business sign, I was fascinated. Every time the Panthers got near to the clock, I was like, what are they going to do? Are they going to do it again? Are they really going to follow the model? And when you look at the value they got back, it's pretty much equal, if not more so, than what no, it's they greater. paid for, for Sam Darnold. Like, they, they got Darnold for free, technically. Like, again, it's a little bit of a stretch, but no, by, when we listen to the laws of algebra. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, you're not kidding. And this is the thing that I've been telling people for years. And it just it goes against conventional wisdom of if you're not hundred percent certain and so many gms are this is my guy we can't move there's a shelf after this we'll lose them that's the that's the preeminent wisdom and it's kind of like going for it on fourth down right not not punting when you're on the 50 yard line like it's fourth and two like your outcome's better if you just go for it right that was impossible 10 years ago and the draft is the same way you're gonna see more people follow this model now it has to be successful but they're gonna look and say 
damn, they got Darnold for free, right? And they got all these other players. And was it that much worse than if they'd picked at their spot? And the answer is no, it's better. No. Mm -hmm. because you know they just got more chances and again you apply a 30 percent hit rate to 12 picks versus seven picks and you get another player or two right that's a big deal in the nfl so anyways the panthers fascinating throughout from the get-go now they stuck at eight they picked jc horn and again that was the first sort of like whoa pick like that wasn't chalk you know a lot of people said they were going to go for a quarterback whatever else like they say jc horn number one defensive matchup weapon he's going to allow us to do things in our division where we just lock him up on a guy doesn't matter whether it's a slot receiver an outside receiver a tight end and say that guy's gone from the game plan and we can take our other defensive weapons which we drafted all defense last year and just move them around to compensate because we know jc is going to basically erase a guy so they stick and pick at eight after that they hang up the we're open sign and they trade back five times in their next what would have been seven picks round two they get one of my favorite players in the entire draft terrace marshall jr out of lsu i think he is legitimately a guy who could ascend to be a number one within two or three years Mm -hmm. tremendously valuable vertical skill set but he's more than that he's fast he's got great hands he's tall got a great frame just a very complete wide receiver that i think was overshadowed by jamar chase pretty heavily but was a good receiver they get him at 59 that's a crazy value and adds again um when we're talking about jared goff in detroit right give sam darnold as many weapons as you can give him give him more weapons than he's ever had give him some decent protection and if that falls apart it's on darnold and we can go get a quarterback next year to that point round three pick 70 brady christensen one of my favorite outside zone tackles in the entire draft they pick him up to go probably opposite taylor moton who's a very solid right tackle for them round three with one of those extra picks tommy trimble the teh back out of notre dame one of the best blocking players in the entire draft no matter what the position At and any position yeah yeah just somebody said he'll melt your face mask i think that might have been greg cassell <laughs> who said the guy will just melt your face mask he's gonna get up in your business and and push you out of the way that's his gig but he's also tremendously athletic and was used i would say in a limited way in a receiving role there but he's got more capacity than he showed at notre dame there so a really interesting matchup weapon for the panthers there round four pick 126 i don't know if you heard this so matt rule's wife was lobbying for chuba hubbard as the pick really yep because chuba tore them up when he was at baylor <laughs> so she's like hey go get the guy that kicked your ass yeah two years oh, ago that hilarious. guy that freaking torched us she's texted her husband going he's still there you can get him that guy's amazing he floored us right oh that's so funny that's great uh so anyways chuba hubbard uh one of the best pass blocking rbs in this draft you talked about a best backfield protector for miami chuba is one of the guys there there's like three different levels of blocking running backs one is i can get in the way right I'll dive at his legs. I'm a cut blocker. I just need to distract this guy or make him hop for long enough that my quarterback sees that I've gone down and knows to get rid of the ball. It's almost like a flare going off, right? That's the, that's the flare protector. Then there's the, the protector that's pretty good helping out, right? You give me a chip with a tight end. You give me some help on an offensive tackle. I, I go 
stand next to the guard and pick up the inside stunt. Like, I'm pretty good as long as I have help. And then there's the pure, oh, I've got a guy coming off the edge, like unaccounted for linebacking blitzer, and I'm it, and I have to set up in space with technique and pass protect. That's the sort of elite, right? That was guys like Ezekiel Elliott at, at Ohio Williams State too. that was... No problem. I got it. I've got good form. I've got good technique. I've got good power. I'm going to use leverage and I'm going to hold this guy for a couple of seconds on my own. Like I'm not mm-hmm. just going to like dive at his ankles. I'm going to make sure this guy doesn't get anywhere. Chuba Hubbard is that guy in this draft. He is very good. He, I think offensive linemen could take, <laughs> could take pointers <laughs> from his pass set and protection. He drops his butt. He gets his hands up. He keeps his back square. He moves his feet throughout the rep mirrors, pushes, locks out when he can like he's a very good blocker um has the ability to hit the outside zone running lanes hello brady christensen um has the speed to make those cuts hurt when he does uh i have a little question about his decision making ability sometimes more inside than outside but again round four pick 126 you're getting a talented athlete that's not going to get your quarterback killed as an rb2 look he's not taking cmc's job anytime soon um (laughs) but i think he could be because of that blocking rb2 but at least for once christian won't have to play every single freaking snap for sure i mean good you have a legitimate backup like that is not going to get darnold killed because darnold not the most mobile guy has mobility but not the most mobile guy um, and that's the major roadblock to ru- rookie running backs playing time is, are you going to get our most valuable assets smeared all over the field? If so, you don't get on the field. If you can pass protect on day one, like you've got a path to playing time. Then they just start adding value. This is where they stack picks. They push all these picks back. They get Davion Nixon, DT out of Iowa, big power guy, upfield power rusher, pretty much one move, one path, which is forward and i'm going to push you out of the way <laughs> can crush the pocket when he puts his rushes together um really interesting addition in rotation with Derek brown bravion roy daquan jones pj johnson and a guy we're going to talk about phil hoskins one of my favorite late picks um keith taylor cornerback out of washington who we both thought was undervalued um they apparently thought so too they picked him at 166 i saw keith taylor way down in the 200s and a lot of boards he had more value than that. Um, round six, 193. This is this is a story we we need to find out more about. Deontay Brown, the guard from Alabama. There were people saying he was going to get picked in the third. We're in the sixth now, folks. Pick 200. And he's just a massive guard. And he could have gone three rounds earlier. It's a great value. But there's something that made him drop at least a couple of rounds. I think it was, like again, this is going to be sounds sounds bad to say i think it was weight i think a sure. lot of teams had had questioned it was same thing with tyler shelvin at lsu for sure will can he play under three and he checked in at camp at 343 but he was 365 at bama yeah he was and he, ma- was and he moved like he was 365 yeah. yeah he's still big but i think a lot of teams question it's like yeah, yeah we can get we can we can get him there but will he stay there and we'll see Yeah, they get a great value in round six, 193. Um, And then another guy that I love that didn't get talked about enough, I tried to talk about him as often as I could in the lead-up, which is Shai Smith out of South Carolina. This is a guy that does his job. The the job title is wide receiver, right? And he (laughs) plays largely out of the slot. This is a guy that runs accurate routes, is tough, 
is accurate, and, and you might say, wait, you say he's a wide receiver, not a quarterback. I mean, he is accurate in his route running. He is going to be where he is supposed to be, when he is supposed to be there. And quarterbacks love guys like that. Very solid hands, physical enough to take a hit over the middle. Is he a huge yak guy? He's not. That's why he went in the sixth, not in the fourth or the third. Um, but I, I can sneaky see him being that very solid wide receiver four, wide receiver five for them that just always makes plays. He's going to remind Darnold a lot of Jamison Crowder, right? Mm. He's, a, he's a guy with a similar skill set, maybe not quite as physically talented, but is going to be like a clock. He's going to be on time where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be. He's going to catch the ball. And quarterbacks love those guys. Um, again, you've got a bunch of extra picks in the six. Go get a long snapper. Go get one of the top specialists in the draft. Get Thomas Fletcher out of Alabama. Extra swings. Who cares? We can grab a specialist and we don't have to wait and try and get him in the UDFA scramble. We like that guy. We need one. We're going to secure him. Doesn't hurt when you have 12 picks to go get a, to go get a long snapper. And then the guy I mentioned earlier, Phil Hoskins, DT out of Kentucky. I made notes about him in 2019. He made a bunch of plays when I was watching other players versus Kentucky. I love this pick, like capital L-O-V-E, love this pick. Round seven pick, 232, what a lot of people would consider a throwaway. Hoskins is a massive human being. He's like 6'5", 319, um, flashed on tape for me. Excellent addition, just another solid developmental player, rotational player. We're seeing this on defense, especially with the really big guys. Don't leave them in there for 50, 60, 70 snaps. Have them in there for 35, 40 snaps a game. Have another couple of guys that can come in for their 35 or 40 snaps. Everybody stays fresher. Yes, it means we need to put an extra roster spot into the DTs, but it also means we have big guys who still have fresh legs late in the game. And Hoskins was a guy that I didn't really, I didn't catch the Panthers picking him in the flurry of the seventh. And I was like, did he go UDFA? And I was like, no, he got picked. He went to the Panthers where, again, he's got all these talented defensive linemen I named earlier, and he just fits into that rotation, doesn't have any pressure to perform. I bet he makes this team. He's a talented guy that had good reps in the SEC. My biggest takeaway from this Panthers class, loose lips sink ships. You know why I say that, EJ? (laughs) No. I mean, I know the reference, but I don't know why you say it in reference to this class. The Saints have a leak, EJ. Oh, do they? <laughs> Carolina got word the Saints were trying to trade up for J.C. Horn. They took J.C. Horn. They pick at 59. Saints pick at 60. They were going to take Brady Christensen. They got word the Saints were going to take Terrace Marshall, and they said, oh, no, <laughs> we're not going to allow that. We're going to oh, take Terrace man. Marshall at 59 and hope that Brady Christensen gets there to 70. And he did. And they get lucky. Yep. That's why when San Francisco had zero leaks for the, even though everybody thought they were going to take Mac Jones, they never corrected anything. They never said anything. They No leaks come out of that front office because if there's a leak, somebody can take your player. That's what happened in New Orleans. Now, I love Pete Werner as a linebacker, but they wanted Terrace Marshall. And now they're going to play take, against Terrace Marshall. And I would take Terrace Marshall over Pete Warner. Mm-hmm. No offense, Pete. Uh, you know, Terrace Marshall is a dynamic guy. And if, again, Pete Warner might have a better career. You never know in the draft. He could be a solid 10-year guy. Um, but if Terrace Marshall hits his ceiling, it's higher than Pete Warner's. 
That's it. Like, and when you're picking guys that high in the draft, you're looking at guys that if everything goes right and they develop correctly, what, what's their max, how, what's the most they could help us. And Terrace Marshall's ceiling, I can say with confidence is higher than Pete Werner's. Now, does that mean he's going to be a better NFL player? We don't know that there's so many variables, but when you're picking, that's what you have to go on. And I love the gamble, right? Because it worked, right? And there's plenty of gambles in a draft that don't work out, but it's like, oh, we really want Christensen. And there had started to be a run on tackles by then. So it is a risk, right? We might lose that player, but we're not going to let him go to someplace we might see him more often than we want to. So we're going to, it's kind of a double negative for for the Saints, Mm -hmm. right? Not only did you not get him, but we did. And that's actually a, a pretty decent segue there. Look at us, EJ. We're almost professional at this. Uh, for our last segment before we get into Matt Bowen's interview, uh, which is rookies that are worth drafting in fantasy football this year out of these teams that we just went over, specifically in best ball formats, which is a little bit different. Remember, it's you're not having to pick starters every single week, so you don't get screwed by injuries. You don't get screwed by you know, game script. It's just if you're really good at drafting, whoever on your roster gets the most points from week to week, you're going to get credit for that. So it's... It's it's a much more, I guess you could say, fair format for fantasy football, which is why it's becoming a lot more popular every single year because it's a lot more fun to just be good at drafting and not get screwed over. Uh, and so we've been uh, we've been partnering with Underdog Fantasy basically this whole summer because they want to spread the gospel of best ball fantasy football and EJ and I both love that format, so we are more than happy to do that with Underdog. Remember, if you use the link at the description below, use promo code BRETT. That'll get you $25 in cash to use on the platform, which conveniently is the same amount for their uh, for an entry into their $3.5 million best ball tournament, $1 million to first prize. So keep that in mind when we're talking about these guys because rookies might make or break a lot of those teams that, that could potentially win the million dollars. So pay attention here because Terrace Marshall was EJ's first pick for this. And before EJ goes off, I, I, I want to bring one thing up here. And I'm sorry for the podcast listeners, but if you're watching on YouTube, this is going to be uh, much better for you guys since there's a visual aid. Oh, no. You sharing. brought visual aids? I brought visual aids, EJ. Oh, this boy. is the 2019 LSU <laughs> install <laughs> under Joe Brady. This is Joe Brady's playbook. <sighs> From when he was, again, I'm, I'm sharing it on screen for people that, that are just listening in podcast format. This is Joe Brady's playbook from when he was Terrace Marshall's offensive coordinator at LSU in Joe Burrow's Heisman season. Joe Brady is now going to be his offensive coordinator again uh, at Carolina. And this play right here was their go-to in high red zone and pretty much to 40 yards. Marshall played this spot right here, which is Z receiver. They would anytime they were on a hash, they would pretty much dial this up. It looks very similar to like middle read from a Bruce Arians playbook because of this little middle read here. Uh, and so they run this on a hash. You go trips to the field, and this Z receiver here, which is Marshall's spot, he's the widest receiver to the trip side to the field. They call this the number one strong. This almost never gets thrown. It's a very I don't want to say unreliable. It's a low percentage throw because it's a vertical route from the far hash, which in itself, it has to, it's got to go a long way to get there. It's a low percentage ball. 
unless you have a receiver like Terrace Marshall, who led all of college football in contested catch rate and turns a 50-50 from the far hash into an 80-20. Literally, I'm not kidding. It was over 80% contested catch rate. That's going to be his role. Anytime the Panthers get from like the 40-yard line into high red zone, they are calling this play, they are throwing it to Terrace Marshall, and he is going to score a shitload. I know he's a rookie. You have to get him on your best ball roster because every now and then he's going to pop off for 80 yards and two touchdowns just from this play, and that might win you a million dollars. What say you, EJ? Well, first things first, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not shocked. If anybody else had pulled that out, I might have been a little bit surprised at least that <laughs> I've known you long enough that I'm like, no, I'm not surprised at all. Um, best ball is an amazing format. I don't know this about you, so I have to ask, are you a golfer? Have you ever golfed? Uh, I'm a terrible golfer, but well, that, that counts, that's most yes. of us. Right. I haven't golfed in a long time and I wasn't ever great. I was proficient at one point. But if you've ever played in a golf tournament, best ball's the thing, right? Four of you line up on the tee, y'all y'all hit a ball, and then you go, Ah, I like John's. <laughs> like John's is out there in the middle of the fairway and mine's over there in the woods. I'm just gonna go pick that up and we're all gonna hit off John's and then you do the same thing on the next shot. It's a much more enjoyable format for golf because you don't have to be penalized for all your terrible choices. Much like best ball and fantasy, you just get the best of your choices. And we've all had that where, oh, uh, yeah, I would have won if that guy that had 230 yards and two scores wasn't on my bench. Now you just get credit for it automatically. So best ball, a great format in golf, great format in fantasy as well. Um, <laughs> Terrace Marshall, again, he's got the Joe Brady familiarity. And to a point, Sam Darnold can throw that ball right? Robbie Anderson, who now is in Carolina and he's reunited with, is going to be playing that receiver on the other side of the field, right? The tight side of the field. And DJ Moore is going to be the guy in the slot that's coming up over the cross, right? And Marshall's going to be out there. And again, he's a rookie. He's largely going to be one-on-one. They're not going to double Marshall, not until he Mm -hmm. starts scoring, right? And maybe not even then. (laughs) Because again, he's a rookie and you got to be reasonable about your expectations, but Darnold can throw that ball and he is, you know, Marshall is familiar with Brady's offense. It's not, he's going to be up to speed faster than a lot of wide receivers are, even though the playbook is, is more complicated and has more options in the pros. So is he going to be your scoring leader? No, he is absolutely not going to be your scoring leader. Does he have the potential out of these classes to put some points on your board? Yep. Are you going to get credit for those points? Do you have to pick the right week to get him lined up and say, I think Darnold hits him this week, which is, you know, could be your allure, but it doesn't have to be anymore because you got best ball. Is he going to get you some points? He is. Is he going to score this year? He is. He's just too dynamic and talented. Um, So he's my number one pick. Who's your number one pick? So my number one is uh, kind of in the same vein, and that's Michael Carter from the Jets. And he's he's not somebody who's going to get 20 touches a game. He might get 12 to 15. But behind that offensive line where you're running outside zone with Mekhi Becton, you're running it with AVT, every once in a while those two are going to absolutely create a canyon. <laughs> and Michael Carter has the kind of explosive speed where if you give him a canyon two or three times a game, he's going to turn that into 60 or 70 yards by itself because he's that explosive. And he might even score a couple times off that too. So do I expect him to get 
consistently 20-plus points a game? Absolutely not. But there's going to be a couple games where he's getting 25 to 30 on like eight total runs. And I'm going to get those points. Michael Carter is a guy, and I was talking to Josh Norris about this, who also works with Underdog. And when I was doing a... Because you and I, fun fact, even though we're sponsored by underdog you and i are eligible for this contest and i was drafting we need to tell everybody Josh. about that because we we assumed uh especially when we signed with underdog we're like well that's an amazing contest right three and a half million bucks worth of prize money that's amazing by itself million dollar first prize okay that's nuts cool we'll never win it and they were like what we we're like well you know we work for you now. You sponsors. We're, we're not eligible, right? That's the fine print. The bottom of the contest. They're like, no, you can win it. And we'd actually be really psyched if you did. <laughs> and we're like, wait, what? We can enter? They're like, no, we need you to enter. We need you to enter like a bunch. And we were like, okay. <laughs> so we just found <laughs> so this out like that. two days ago that we can actually enter. They want us to enter. We're going to encourage you guys to enter and you're going to get to draft with us. Um, but we could win a million dollars, which is kind of crazy. And if if EJ, and I'm going to commit right now, if EJ or I win this million dollars, we're going to set up like a bootleg retreat. We're going to rent out a bar wherever the next Super Bowl <laughs> is. All the bootleggers are going to come drink with us. Everything's going to be free. You know where the we're going to you know where fun. the Super Bowl is this year. It's an hour away from my house. If anybody's in the Southern California area, if I if yeah. I win this million dollars, we're running out a bar in LA and we're gonna have fun. Again, it's possible. It's possible. Just it's possible. Saying, if I get Michael, if Mike, if I get Michael Carter on my team, if you get Michael it's Carter, and the other thing about Michael <laughs> Carter that's super fun is uh, he's probably gonna score at least once uh, this year on Chip and Leak. Oh yeah, because they're Absolutely. gonna line up a linebacker on him. And he's gonna he's gonna stay in, right? And the linebacker's gonna relax and set his eyes off to okay, who are the crossers, right? He's gonna be like, no, he's blocking. And Michael Carter's gonna go bam, squirt out to the flat, and the linebacker's not gonna be able to keep with him. Again, there's a few linebackers in the league that can cover that, and they have to be on it. They have to be vigilant. I mean, like hawk like, basically spying the running back instead of spying the quarterback. Um, and some will, but some won't. They'll see him block. They'll turn their they'll turn their head for a second, and he's going to have two steps to the outside. And if you think you can catch Carter with two steps to the outside, if Darnold throws him a half decent screen, the answer is no. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Legit four four, if not four three speed. Yeah. Like watch his highlights. And quick folks. too. It's fun. Oh, it's so quick. Who's your number one? Uh, my number one, uh, Amon Ross St. Brown. We talked about this a little bit in the mm. UDFA episode and, and building up. And again, these are our, our favorite picks out of these classes, not the favorite picks out of the whole draft. We'll talk about those as we go through our divisional preview. Each week we'll be talking about players that you could add or have a high likelihood of scoring well because of their situation. Um, the reason I like Amon Ross St. Brown, I, I sort of mistakenly said I thought he was going to be wide receiver three. He might ascend to that role because of the role he plays. But literally, the the Vic or the Vikings, the Lions have three legitimate veteran starters they brought in. Um, well, one in Quintez Cephas, who was on the roster, and two guys in free agency that probably will start ahead of him. So that puts him up as wide receiver four. But guess what? Jared Goff is very familiar with four wide receiver sets coming from L.A., and they're definitely going to use some in the offense. The other thing is the Lions are most likely going to be behind. We like what they're building, <laughs> but their talent level is not 
where they're going to be contending for the division, most likely, or really probably more than eight wins, even though there's now 17 games. Now, if they if they do more than that, they're exceeding expectations. So that means they're going to be coming from behind. That means they're going to open up Jared Goff and say, air it out. And that means three or four wide receivers. So that means more chances for a guy like St. Brown. And he's got a skill set that works inside, that works outside. They're going to be able to run him in trips. He is very tenacious in his receiving. He is not a guy that lets a lot of balls go by him. Um, and he's not a guy that goes down easily after he gets the ball. And does that mean again, that he's going to be your number one scoring option? I sure hope not. If you're, if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong, but is he going to produce some points this year? Uh, just from yards in, you know, blowouts when Jared Goff's whipping it and they're trying to catch up in the third or fourth quarter. Yeah. He's going to get yards. Is he going to score a lot? Can't guarantee it. It'll depend on how Dan Campbell and his staff call the offense when they get in the red zone. But is he going to be involved? Eh, maybe more than some of these other uh, offensive threats on the on the teams that I mentioned. So between Marshall and Brown, you're going to get some points. Are you drafting them up high? No, that's probably not the best strategy. But you're going to take late round flyers on these guys. And again, you get their points whether or not you choose to, quote unquote, activate them because you don't have to activate them. You get all the points off your roster every week. Plus, he's only one injury away from seeing every single that's snap. kind of my point is any of these guys and one of the guys ahead of him is Brashad Perryman and Perryman's career has stabilized but he was plagued by injuries for the first three four years in the league almost washed out because of it now he seems to have sort of hit his stride and put most of that behind him but you know there's no telling that one of the other guys doesn't the NFL is a very rough league we have an extra game this year you know so it's just more wear and tear and again, they're going to be trying to throw from behind. So Amon Ross St. Brown could eventually be seeing wide receiver three reps regularly at some point in the season. And Goff spreads the ball around. He's not a guy that typically plays favorites. So is he going to be a ton? No, because the ball gets spread around. But is he, is he going to get some? He is. I would say uh, my number one is a, a similar type uh, situation where it's Ball's going to get spread around a lot because Tua Tungalevoa plays, you know, quarterback like a point guard. It's very much get the ball, get it out. Uh, but Jalen Waddell is my other rookie that I'm targeting heavily in best ball because when he gets the ball in his hand, he doesn't need 10 catches to score. He needs one. You know, it's he could have a stat line that's very much like Deshaun Jackson where it's two catches, 90 yards, two touchdowns. Like that. that's a... a feasible stat like, like watch his Auburn game when he was a uh, was a freshman year I think it was where he got barely any touches and he got four touchdowns against Auburn in the Iron Bowl like are you kidding me like he's that kind of dynamic threat and I know that Will Fuller is there but good luck to him to stay healthy I love Will Fuller but durability's never been his thing uh you know you got Devontae Parker who's a different kind of receiver that plays a different kind of role Lynn Bowden is I don't even know what the hell Lynn Bowden's going to be for them, to be perfectly honest. Wild card. We'll just say he's wild a wild card. card. Uh, you know, Preston Williams has never really been a picture of health. Uh, Jakeem Grant is probably his only competition for that role as a true slot receiver, but let's be real, Jalen Waddle will beat him out. As much as I like Jakeem Grant, he's not as explosive as Jalen Waddle. Again, as I said earlier, only Tyreek Hill is. Like it's it, We're talking about that caliber of burst here. Not to mention he already has familiarity with Tua. Like, you put him in the slot and say, go get open in under two seconds and Tua will get it to you. 
he'll get open in under two seconds. That's why they took him at six overall. So uh, I know it's it's not the most um, off the wall pick to say go draft Jalen Waddle, but please go draft Jalen Waddle. Yeah, of the right. four guys we mentioned, <laughs> if you've got a shot at Waddle up high, he's the guy to take up high. These other guys are, you know, Carter. I would say is mm, closer to middle or two thirds of the way down. Uh, along with Terrace Marshall in that same sort of vein, and then St. Brown a little bit lower. But Jalen Waddle's like a legit guy that's going to put up um, both yards uh, and points. And if they decide to toss him in there on special teams because he is an effective guy in that role, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to be exposing the, the number six overall pick to those kind of hits, but a couple times. And again, he doesn't need 55 returns to come up with a couple of long ones and maybe a score he needs like eight yeah <laughs> just look at that auburn game yeah. i swear to god like that's all you need to watch is that one game that tells you all i need to know about Jalen waddle dudes he's an absolute monster in every sense of the word um so that was a fun segment i really enjoyed that i uh, hope you guys did too why don't we get into a remarkable interview that we had with uh, both yours and mine, one of our personal heroes, and that is Matt Bowen. Still can't believe that I'm saying those words that he came on the Bootleg Football Podcast, but we got freaking Matt Bowen because EJ's tenacious and was able to get him on this show. Uh, it was a great interview. Can't wait for you guys to listen to it. We'll see you back on the other side. Super excited to be joined now by one of my favorite uh, film gurus in all of football media, and I could speak for EJ on that as well. Matt Bowen uh, played DB for seven years in the league, DB coach by trade, in addition to seemingly being on every single podcast known to mankind these days, talking about uh, the aftermath of the NFL draft. Uh, couldn't be happier to have you on. Thank you for being here. Well, I'm glad to be here, guys. So first things first, uh, I, I kind of wanted to get into nitty gritty um, scheme fits because it's, it's easy to say like, oh, okay, I like uh, Pat Sertan. I like J.C. Horn. Like everybody loves those guys. But who would you say uh, specifically out of this DB class are your favorite scheme fits, like skill set to system? Uh, can be any round any any player really but who were the guys where when they went off the board you looked at him was like man he's going to be really successful in that defense well i think the first one is greg newsom corner on northwestern went to cleveland right you look at newsom and what he is as a corner i would say he's got a versatile skill set right he can play man or zone we've seen him in off man coverage we've seen him in press man can create i use the term on the ball production guys because look everyone wants to get interceptions i wanted to get interceptions too I had four in seven years. Okay, those things are hard to get. They are hard to get. Okay, but what you want at the quarterback position is someone who drives in the football, can make plays in the football. And especially as a defensive back coach in high school, if you make a play in the football, you get a pass broken up. We call it a PBU. That's a big-time play. Okay, especially if you're looking at game situations, inside the red zone, third-down situation. And Newsom is around the football. Okay, and people that are around the football doesn't happen by accident. Kevin's for a couple of reasons in the secondary. Uh, your football awareness, your instincts, your understanding wide receiver splits, formation and alignment, down and distance, game situation, where routes are going to break. And I always say this. I, I was taught this a long time ago by Steve Jackson, my defensive back coach in Washington under Greg Williams, our defense coordinator, that outside of the quick game, so, you know, a slant, a hitch, a smoke route, 
every route breaks between 12 and 15 yards in the NFL, pretty much. Double move is about eight yards. Okay, so 12 to 15 yards, you're preparing for the wide receiver to break, whether you're impressed, snugged up to the hip, or you're playing off man trying to keep your cushion. Now, if they get past 15 yards, you better turn and run right? because they're not <laughs> going to stop. They're going to try to take you down the field. But Newsom is excellent at that. Now go to the scheme in Cleveland. They're very split safety heavy. And guys, I'll tell you right now, I think that's where the league is going. You know, because the NFL is so pass heavy right now, you're seeing more quarters. You're seeing more cover two. You're seeing cover six, which is quarter, quarter, half. So trying to limit explosive plays. You know, you're going to give up some plays. You play Patrick Mahomes, you play Rodgers, you play Josh Allen, you're going to give up some plays. But do you, can you limit the big plays down the field? And I think that's why you're seeing more split safety. You get that in Cleveland. You get some cover three, you know, which is three deep coverage. You also get your man. So if you're looking at a corner who's got versatile traits, will drive in the football, will create on-the-ball production, will play pressing off, and also tackle in the run game, that one jumped out to me immediately, Greg Newsom, in terms of the skill set and the ideal scheme fit. Now, you mentioned J.C. Horn and Sertan. I'll go back to J.C. Horn. Now, Carolina was one of the most zone-heavy teams in the NFL last year. Okay, so you draft mm-hmm. a man corner in the top ten. The J.C. Horn, to me, has some of the most competitive coverage traits I've studied on film in quite some time. He will battle. He play outside. He can play in the slot. He's got a long frame. He's physical. He's a willing tackler, and that's the thing. If you're a DB coach and a guy is willing to tackle, hey, you can you you can work with that. You can work on tackling technique. You can work on angles. But the willingness there from J.C. Horn to be a physical tackler, I do see it on film. They say, why would they draft a zone? You know, in a zone-heavy defense, why would they draft a man corner? Well, I do think the man reps will increase. But also, if you look at the NFL film today, teams, especially versus three by one sets. So you have your X receiver into the boundary, you got trips to the field. What teams are doing now is they'll play corners to the field. They'll lock that backside corner. So it's basically yeah. playing man technique within the zone. We saw it a bunch last year in L.A. with Jalen Ramsey and Brandon Staley's defense. Here we go. Yeah. Quarters to the field. Lock Jalen Ramsey. What that now gives you is flexibility in your defense. So if I'm a safety into the boundary, now I can go look for work. I know J.C. Horn has got him locked down. Now I'm going to help there if the quarterback looks here. Of course I am. My eyes are immediately and go to the trip side. Can I steal number three vertical? Can I steal a crosser? Now you get an extra body in terms of your coverage. So I do think you'll see that with Carolina in addition to an increase in man reps. And Patrick Sertan, I thought Sertan was the best corner in this class. I really believe that. Just for in terms of his physical play style, his coverage traits, uh, he's the prototype of the position, what you look for right now. You know, he's six foot plus. He's got great testing times, explosive traits based on his testing time and his this tape can play the ball down the field, will tackle, will set an edge in a run game. That really fits with Vic Fangio, what he wants in his corners. Now, they are split safety heavy again, but like we just talked about with playing quarters a lot, and even to the field, think about it. You're playing quarters to the field. The number one releases vertical. It's basically a man matchup in quarters. That's all it is. Yeah. Playing from off And look, you can press in quarters too. So yeah, uh, I like those fits obviously as well. But those top three corners um, – I love their tape. They're, you know, they all have the ability to play man. I think that's what everyone wants. Even though we are so seeing more zone-heavy defenses in the NFL, if you're third and two to six, if you're inside the low red zone, which I call the plus 10-yard line and in, you want to play man coverage. You want to challenge people. You want to disrupt people. And you want people that are tone setters in your secondary. I'll mention one more. Elijah Molden, who I really liked on his Washington Ooh, film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, and Elijah Molden – 
Is he a true slot corner? Probably not. Is he a true safety? Maybe. I mean, is he a hybrid slot, you know, like a like a slot safety, I would call it. And I just totally made that word up. Okay, so it's not probably a real word. <laughs> we got word, it. But, you know, I want to coach guys like that, right? I want Elijah Molden in my secondary. He is a tone setter. He's a tone setter. Highly instinctual. He's got ball skills. Understands how to defeat blocks, whether going over the top or sliding around the back to get in on a run play. Is a strong tackler in the open field. Has incredible forward ability. Okay, when I look forward to take with guys who play underneath, do they have forward ability? When the ball's thrown, can they explode out of their break with speed and take a proper angle and cut off the ball? I think he's a you know a really versatile player that you can scheme up in your pressure schemes, have an instant impact in your in your sub packages. You look at Tennessee, not as much last year as two years ago, but I think they're going to get back to it. They use so much late movement in disguise. They show single high, they spin it too deep. They show too deep. Quarterback comes in line of scrimmage, all of a sudden it's pressure. Guys are flying from everywhere. He has that ability to play multiple roles when you spin the secondary leg. Yeah, he was the guy that I looked at where it's like, okay, Tennessee runs more creepers than basically everybody else in the league, and they love to bring the nickel. Yes. So you better get a nickel that is explosive. But more importantly, if he's coming free off the edge because they call the wrong protection, it's one thing to get a DB one-on-one with a 240-pound quarterback. It's another thing to actually get him on the ground, and that dude can tackle. Like you said, tackling is important. Yeah, and how many times have we seen Mahomes or Rodgers, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen beat a free rusher off the edge, right? Yeah. It's all the time because they are all elite the players at the position. So can you be that guy that can take the proper angle, attack the upfield shoulder of the quarterback, and get him on the ground? He's shown he can do that. Um, again, I wrote this piece for ESPN. It was like a draft superlatives piece. And I basically, with Bolden, I said, this is a guy I would love to coach. Because I've always believed this uh, from secondary play. When you turn on the film, if you're a wide receiver, and, and you put stuff on film that, that tells them that we are going to dictate the tempo of this game, that has impact. It has impact. We need the guys in the secondary. And I was trying to think of a comp for Elijah Molden, the closest one I can get to. And maybe they're not the same player, but in terms of play style, it was Buda Baker. You know, I always look for safeties that are urgent, that show urgency to, urgency to the football. And you get that a lot with Molden. Yeah, Molden was, was one of our favorites from the point that he plays around the line and he's he's good at that. There's a lot of guys Ooh. that play around the line, but he's good going forward, as you said, He's good against the run. He's willing to stick it in there. He'll make impact when he does that against the run or the pass. He's a guy that, you know, not an elite tester, not an elite size, not elite length, but like something you said earlier that I just love was guys around the ball aren't there by accident, right? They're there because they study. They're there because they know what's going on. And in his case, he combines those two things and the speed doesn't matter as much. He's got enough speed in that condensed short area he knows where it's going. He'll get there, and he'll make impact when he does. And that's a valuable player in a league that is base nickel and goes dime. You need three, four DBs up against the line, and they have to go forward and back. And Molden, Molden fits that. And I saw so many people say, well, he doesn't have deep speed. He's not going to need deep speed on most of his reps, right? That's not where yeah. he's going to make his money. So, And the other three guys, the top three guys, it's funny because we talked about all three of those guys at the top of this podcast. Uh, as we were talking about some of our favorite draft fits and, you know, horns tackling Newsom's sort of aggressiveness and that alpha mentality to go with the skill set, right? He doesn't care if he's manned up. He wants to be manned up mm-hmm. because he believes 
he is the best corner. He believed he was the best corner in the draft. He said so repeatedly. And, you know, you want to see that from a guy that, again, you're going to leave one-on-one in essentially a man matchup and say, go get him, champ. And he's like, yep, that's what I'm here for. So. You bring up a great point about Molden, too, because guys that don't have elite testing numbers and don't have elite height, weight, and speed, they, you know, that's where they're drafted. They're drafted in the third, fourth, and fifth round. The great thing about the NFL, none of that matters anymore. Once you're in camp, no one cares, no one cares what your 40 time is anymore. It doesn't matter. Can you play or not? Can you fit in the scheme? Can you be? Can you produce? Can you be alignment and assignment sound as a rookie? So I can trust you to put you on the field in critical game situations. You do those things. Now it's just about playing football and game reps, getting used to NFL speed. Uh, and they'll go through that transition process. And this year you're going to have training camp. You're going to have preseason football games. So those are all positives for this rookie class. You know, I remember when I was a rookie in St. Louis, you talk about a teaching tool. I went against the greatest show on turf every day, twice a day. Mm-hmm. I was back, we had two days. We traveled. We went to Western Illinois, University of Macomb. Um, and, and look, it's hot everywhere in the summer. So you're going two a day practice, and I'm trying, trying to stay in the deep path over the top of Isaac Bruce and Tori Holt, um, getting taught life lessons every day in that football. <laughs> but you need that stuff, right? You need that stuff as a rookie, and those guys will have that this year. You made a point earlier about split safety coverages becoming more and more normal in the NFL. And I think it probably started a few years ago with Vic Fangio when he had that defense in Chicago rocking and rolling. You had Eddie Jackson and, you know, they could play quarters and be totally confident that if like number two ran a bender and took off, Eddie Jackson could still cover it, you know, without getting pantsed on national television. And now we're seeing, you know, Sean Desai is going to play that same defense again in Chicago this year. Staley's going to play it uh, in uh, in L.A. with the Chargers. They played it last year with the Rams. And I'm assuming the Rams are going to play a similar defense again this year. So it's kind of proliferating around the NFL, whereas for a long time, everybody wanted to run cover three because that's what the Legion of Boom did. And that worked and it was simple and it let guys play fast. But I think as defenses went more towards the spread and they started to take advantage of single high looks with deep crossers and, you know, taking advantage of double seams and everything like that. Now we're starting to see more too high. And something that I found interesting, and it was one of my favorite picks of the whole draft, was when the Chargers took Asante Samuel, because I think Brandon Stay looked at Asante Samuel and was like, that's my Kyle Fuller. That's my field side corner that can play from outside leverage, completely ignore divider rules, but still not get beat inside. And there's like two guys in this whole class that I think can do that, where you throw leverage out the window every single play. It's like you're, you're playing outside. Everything outside the numbers is yours. You have a safety inside and Derwin James who's ranging enough to protect you. And I was kind of putting that secondary together in my head with Asante and Derwin and Adderley. And I I look at what they're building there, and it reminds me a lot of what uh, Vic Fangio had in Chicago in 2018. Would you be able to talk about your thoughts on the secondary in the Chargers and and kind of the defense that they're building there, and and how good do you think they can be? I think they could be excellent. Going back to your point on Vic Fangio, I think everyone remembers that Sunday night game in 2018, Bears and Rams um, at Soldier Field, where – and Vic Fangio's defense basically erased Sean McVay's offense that night. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to pressure out of five-man fronts, the scheme pressure, but also they did in the secondary, and they played quarters. And you brought up a great point about crossing routes. You know, I said earlier that you play split safety, eliminate explosive plays. Sure you do, because you can 
have you can have safety. He's basically bracket deep routes down the field if you get an inside vertical. But more importantly, the ability to take away those crossers, and that comes back to that off safety. You know, if you can press outside with your corner and you can lock number one, now it frees up your safety. Now you're waiting for that crosser to come across the field, just like you see Kansas City is a perfect model for that because they run three roll, three by one trips. They'll take Kelsey backside to occupy that corner. And what they're trying to do is get Tyree Kill loose on that deep over route. Okay, yeah. now you have a safety trying to top it. That's a, that's a really tough responsibility. But guess what? When you lock that backside corner, you're playing split safety. Now that off safety can walk down and wait for the overall. And that's what mm-hmm. they did that game. They are waiting for Robert Woods. They were trusting Mukamura and Fuller to play over the top, and they're using those safeties almost like double rover out of quarters. It was excellent yeah. schematics, excellent football. Uh, with Brandon Staley, you saw it last year, the, the way they used Fuller and John Johnson in the secondary. The same way. And how they played their corners outside. Like we talked earlier, Ramsey would be the guy who would lock the boundary. Saw that um, multiple times they played Seattle against DK Metcalf. But I do like Asante Samuel. I thought Asante Samuel could be a late one. I really did. Mm. I thought he'd be a late one because of his transition speed, because of his physicality, his toughness. And look, I thought some teams might look at him as a nickel corner because he's got lateral ability. And he will tackle. Look, to play the nickel, I think it's one of the toughest spots in the NFL for a couple of reasons. One, like you talked about earlier, you got to be able to blitz. You have to be able to play a two-way go. So you don't have the, the boundary to protect you anymore, right? You talk about divider rules outside. You're playing outside leverage. You get an inside release. You got to pedal. You got to weave. You got to stay on top. You got to keep your cushion. And then you got to be able to transition to the football. The key there is, is Derwin James. If Derwin James is healthy, he's one of the most dominant defense players in this league. It's as simple as that. He's a dominant defensive player. That can yeah. play off-man coverage, can play press, can pedal and weave in a split safety lineman, can drop the hook to curl and cover three, can pressure, can cut off the ball in the run game. And we talk about five-two players in baseball all the time, right? That's a five-two player in the secondary in Derwin James. He is an impact player. The thing is, it's just his health. If he can stay healthy under Brandon Staley's coaching, watch out because they got pass rushers too. That's the thing. Yeah. They have pass rushers too. Yeah, that's going to be – that can be set up like Vanjo's defense was in 2018. Yeah. yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how direct that translation is. We've been talking about it for most of the offseason. The Samuel pick was one that we both kind of looked at each other because I had compared Samuel's style to Fuller's style and that he loves to keep things in front and break downhill. Right. I thought that, like you did, that he was more of a nickel Mm-hmm. Um, because he was smart enough to do it. You see the anticipation on film, on tape. You saw him set guys up. I forget which game that was, Brett, but we both watched it. He creeps in, sees the quarterback, and he goes, nope, and backs off just enough so he'd throw it. He was he knew exactly what was coming. He got tight. He saw the quarterback look over, and he said, no, okay, I'm just going to back up. I'm going to relax baloney. He was like, go ahead. I'm giving you enough rope. And he did it. He went right. And he he was there before the ball was there. He didn't catch it, but it was a, a clean, solid PBU. So you see that anticipation. Like you said, two-way go every route. Got to have it at the nickel. Yeah. I, I It bugs me that a lot of people are like, well, I don't think he's big enough for outside. But he's just a nickel. It's like, no, <laughs> that doesn't – it's <laughs> it's the whole tackle guard thing on defense, right? Just because he's not a boundary corner size or spec in the NFL yeah. doesn't mean he's a great nickel because it's actually harder as a rookie. You need to do more. You don't have the field to work with and usually don't have the safety help, at least, until right. you get deeper. So, But it'll be fascinating to see how they deploy him. 
hopefully we get to see the back end of that defense healthy. And like you said, with their line, they don't have to cover for long. It's not, it's not going to be five second reps for them. You're not going to be standing up that long against Bosa and everybody else in that line. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that particular two high shell comes together uh, in the first year of Staley being there. Yeah. And plus with Staley, he is, he is excellent. We did a lot in the NFL matchup show last year at ESPN and the Rams defensive front. Now, obviously, you say they have Aaron Donald. I understand that. But look at the production he got out of Leonard Floyd. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why did he get there? He got Leonard Floyd a lot of one on ones. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you know, if you get a one on one as a defensive end, edge rusher in the NFL, you got to win those one on ones. He put him in a lot of one on one situations because he run tilted fronts, he run overload fronts, a lot of twists and stunts. You get guys free. And then you have Donald inside who would occupy one, sometimes two blockers at a time. That's how you scheme pass rush. You're seeing that more and more across the NFL. Teams are using uh, their fronts to scheme those rushes. You know, one player I thought about immediately in the draft class is Quiddy Pay out of Michigan who went to Indianapolis mm-hmm. with yeah. the Forrest Buckner and Stewart inside. They'll run the tilted front. What I mean by tilted front, guys, is just you, you have your four-man front. You have someone over nose, someone over the tackle, someone over the end. So right now you're going to get three-man slide and protection. Well, it's three on three. And then when you have three on three, you can do whatever you want. You can yeah. run double picks with a looper. You can run a, just a basic TE stunt outside. What you're doing now is trying to take advantage of the one-on-one matchups by using twist stunts and loops to get a guy free and quitty pay with his short area burst and explosive traits. Even though he's not fully developed as a pass rusher because no one is when they come to the NFL, that's how you create production with him. And I think DeForest Buckner, outside of Aaron Donald, is the most <clears throat> disruptive interior defender in the NFL. And he Quiddy Pay specifically, as you as you mentioned, he's so strong. I can't remember what game it was that Michigan did it uh, last year, but they ran a pirate stunt with him where he just caved in multiple right. offensive linemen and just had the looper go around him. And he's he's one of those guys where the production doesn't really match the tape because he's so strong and so explosive and even though he's only 260 pounds he's got the power of somebody who's like 285 and so even with you know with how mobile DeForest is for being almost 300 pounds even if Quiddy's not the finisher the fact that he's so strong and you can put him honestly anywhere from a four out to a nine and you can do something I maybe even a three with how strong he is like in like a third and nine situation. Right. The fact that he's strong enough to just create disruption for other people to work off of him. I think that's probably a big reason why they took him is because they, they wanted more power with their defensive ends so that they could do more stuff with their interior rushers. Cause their interior line was, was kind of what they were banking on last year. Um, now I did have one question for you since you are a DB coach. And I know you watched a lot of DBs this year. Were there any receivers that popped out while you watched these DBs? And as a former DB, where you're like, man, I'm really happy I didn't have to cover that dude. <laughs> well, obviously the top three you look at, Jamar Chase. Uh, Jamar Chase um, reminds me of playing against Steve Smith. Um, mm. And Steve Smith was the ultimate competitor. Physical play style, physical traits. Uh, had a you know high-end catch-and-run ability can make plays and contested throws, can also stretch you vertically on third-level throws. That's what I see with Jamar Chase. I, I wrote about Chase in, in Cincinnati. It's not as much working back with Burrow. It's at Cincinnati, heavy 11 personnel, right? It's three wide receivers set. One running back, one tight end, three wide receivers. You'd be on the field with T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd. So many crossers, so many overs, so many high-low drive routes. 
to get him loose in space because he's going to bat on every play. He's, mm-hmm. he's going to bat on every play. I, I remember playing against Steve Smith. We were, this is 2002. I was at the Packers. We ran some blitz stunt and it was a poor design because I had to cover Steve Smith. That's not good football. <laughs> Steve, uh, Steve caught like a, like a quick hit, like a slant. And I went to tackle him. He face masked me and basically lifted me off the ground. Like lifted me off the ground. I I, I, I was in panic mode because I was in mid mid air, like parallel to the ground. Grabbed his face mask. And while I was pulling down, I'll take the 15-yard penalty. Nope. Ripped through that one for about 80 yards. Uh, one of the oh, toughest guys man. I've ever seen uh, in my career. But Chase reminds me of that just because I think he can be schemed up. He can be a volume target in that offense. You know, Jalen Waddell, uh, we talked about a matchup with Greg. So Jalen Waddell can be deployed like Tyreek Hill. There's no question. He'd be number three to trips, run the deep overs and the crosser, and absolutely just run away from man coverage. Run away from man coverage because we know he's a top-end speed. He's got some nuance as a route runner as well. I also think he can be – we use the term motion movement wide receivers. You know, there's, there was it was Jalen Waddell, Kadarius Toney, Elijah Moore, Rondale Moore. Because in today's NFL, those guys are schemed so much on misdirection. Amari Rodgers in Green Bay is another one. You know, these heavy motion offenses, that's where the fly sweeps come into play. That's where the key screens come into play off RPOs. That's where the wide receiver reverses come in. Just like we see with Debo Samuel in San Francisco. High-level catch and run ability. Can be schemed as slot targets, but also can excel on manufactured touches. That's what we see with Tyreek Hill. How often do we see Tyreek Hill motion into the backfield? Run stretch or outside zone. Or to catch the ball, motion the backfield, run a swing route, catch the ball in space. There's so many ways you can utilize talent like that because all these guys are yeah, extremely yeah. sudden movements. The top end speed is one thing. It's the sudden movement ability. Kadarius Tony, that jumps off the film with me when I watch Tony. I mean, his sudden ability after the catch uh, to beat defenders in space. I mean, he's almost a slasher in terms of how he runs in the open field, but he's so sudden. Elijah Moore, I mean, you talk about toughness. And being a volume target in the slot with the route running traits, I really like to tape on Elijah Moore. I think it's a great landing spot. Now, obviously, there's competition there for any rookies. There's going to be an adjustment. But Mike LaFleur's offense, okay, with Zach Wilson at quarterback, he's going to be the guy that's going to be schemed on jets. He's going to be the guy that's going to get a line in the backfield and run seam routes and all go eight seam. There's a lot of things you can do with him. But, the, you know, to answer your question, obviously, Jamar Chase, obviously, Devonta Smith, we know about that. But Jalen Waddle. If I was a safety, that would worry me. <laughs> because I think he can get up and go and beat you at any level. You know, he can run double moves down the field. He can stretch you vertically, run away from you on overs and crossers. And then if you scheme up on a screen, you got to tackle him. He's a physical runner too after the catch. But that, I mentioned Amari Rodgers. We obviously know we don't, we don't know what the quarterback situation in Green Bay is going to be a week one. We can all say that. We don't officially know that. But the, you have to look at the system. Regardless of who's playing quarterback, you know, Green Bay ran motion over 50% of their snaps last year. And he's a guy that can be utilized in that system, just like we saw with Tyler Irvin last couple of years in Green Bay as that jet guy, that fly sweep guy. And also he can stretch you vertically down the field. I think that's how the game is changing. And I'm not saying you don't need to be an elite route runner. You do. You have to be able to create separations for route runner. But with these guys who have those dynamic playmaking traits, there's different ways to get them the football as they develop in an NFL roster. And while they're developing an NFL roster, you can scheme those guys open and cater to those traits where now they become explosive play weapons in your offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I like most about Elijah Moore that you mentioned is 
it's not a projection for him with all those touches. Lane Kiffin did all that stuff with him really? at Ole Miss, right? Mm-hmm. They had you've seen all of that on film, and he's been successful in all of it. Straight line up in the slot, rotate to outside, tap pass, jet screens, bubbles, you name it. Line them up straight in the backfield, run them as a decoy. They did that too, and then they handed off to Kenny Yabo going the other way off in line. Like all that stuff has already been done. So when you get him, it's not like, well, we hope he can do this or we hope he can pick it up. Like, hey, remember that thing you did last year? We're going to do it here. And Rodgers the same way. They lined him up in the backfield at his pro day. He's built like a running back. Um, great route runner, showed that at the Senior Bowl. Great hands. But, again, is he, you know, at Tyler Irvin's level or or maybe even better? Physically, yeah. Mentally, he's got to grow into the game and the speed. You talked about the speed of the NFL. He's got to make those adjustments, but he's got all those abilities, and they used him that way in his college scheme. Um, so, you know, have at it. Yeah, another guy I'd mentioned is Dwayne Eskridge. Western Michigan, another guy who had a great week in the Senior Bowl, obviously. Mm-hmm. You watch his tape on RPO throws. Um, and obviously, you know, RPO for your listeners, run pass option, as you guys know. Mm-hmm. They run the quick glance route, I call it. It's just almost like a deeper slant. I mean, it, he's got easy an easy accelerator in the open field. He can get up and go. You know, a little tight-hipped. Okay, you can see that on his film, a little functional hip tightness, which is fine. A lot of players have that. But in terms of a straight line speed, and that's going to be very interesting in Seattle this year. Do they become a little bit more passive? Do they become a little bit more aggressive in the pass game? Because right now they're top three. You got DK, you got Tyler Lockett, and now you got a Dwayne Eskridge who brings explosive playability to your offense as well. And again, fits the modern NFL. That's where this whole discussion is going. We talk about the split safety coverage. You look at the linebackers in this class with Davis, Micah Parsons, Xavier Collins, Chad Surratt, who I really liked. I think it's an ascending player still developing out of North Carolina, the woods of Minnesota. These second-level linebackers. You know, I think it's interesting because I know the NFL does this as well at at an NFL matchup show. We base a lot of our draft show off the Super Bowl, right? Mm -hmm. So we looked at second-level linebackers, Devin White, Levante David, the impact they had in that Tampa defense. You remember the Super Bowl. They were playing two man. (sighs) Levante David was matched up to Travis Kelsey. You talk about the toughest matchup in the league. That's one of them right there. But their their second-level range, the ability to run and hit, Cut off the ball in the run game. And I know you guys watched this. You remember the Monday night game this year in L.A. beat Tampa, but it was that Monday night game with the Rams in Tampa. And mm-hmm. L.A. had to go to empty. They couldn't get to the edge. They couldn't run outside yeah. zone. Yeah. Yeah. Because you got guys like Sue eating up interior blockers, Pierre Paul setting the edge, and these linebackers were running free to the football. They can simply not get to the edge because of the speed, the cutoff angles, the cutoff and force and run support. That stuff still matters. It still matters. So the linebackers that went in this class as well, the top end guys, they have the traits or the multidimensional traits really to play in today's game. And what was interesting about that L.A. Tampa game, because I remember I was watching it and something that they adjusted early in that game is anytime they tried to get those linebackers to pause because they're like, well, they both you know run four, 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 five. So they're going to get there just on speed. So they tried to get them to take false steps with Jets. And right. so then Bull started playing one high, and he would start here, and then as soon as the Jet would go, they'd just spin the safety so, so they, they would get leverage to the Jet, and the linebackers didn't have to worry about it at all. And there was nothing they could do. Like, once the Jet was taken out of the equation, and obviously, you know, Sue's disrupting inside, the linebackers didn't even get blocked. All they had to do was, like, I'm just going to go to the C-gap, and that's my guy. And that was it. It was brilliant. Really not a, a major adjustment, right? It's a smart defensive yeah. football. Let's get numbers advantage with our safeties. 
So our linebackers can track the run game in the box. Okay. Yeah. You're not, you're not recreating football. They're just recreating smart football. That's what the best defensive coordinators do. They don't make it overcomplicated. They find a way to get numbers advantage and to keep a numbers advantage in the box at the same time. So basically a way to cut off the ball on the edge and keep those players in the box. I agree. That was, that was excellent football. Now we haven't talked about Kyle Pitts. Um, <laughs> not yet but where yeah. you start there's a <laughs> lot of ink, a lot of ink yeah. on that guy he's and he's just getting started because I, the whole debate about I, i'll just ask you how you felt about the okay. whole debate of wide receiver tight end because to me that's two letters in front of his name and he can do either and he yeah. again he demonstrated that it's not a projection um you're an iowa guy right it's not mm-hmm. an iowa 10 co- iowa tight end coming out who had six catches in his college career and you're like maybe he could be a hundred catch guy like Pitts has done all that already it doesn't matter about alignment it doesn't matter who he was lined up against he went against horn he went against everybody he yeah. had production yeah. now he had battles but he had production and high level production on I'm going to say not the greatest throws, right? Everybody was all over Kyle Trask, but Kyle Pitts was making Kyle Trask look good and not necessarily the other way around most of the time. So how did you feel about that whole, oh, he should be a wide receiver or, oh, we should leave him at tight end? I think you you just get the ball to him, right? doesn't matter, okay? Because <laughs> you bring up a great point. He did against Horn. He made, I remember running a great, you know, great slant route against Patrick Tan. Um, he can match up for anyone. Um I'm very interested to see how he's utilized, deployed in the Atlanta offense. Because, look, he's going to be attached to the core of the formation at times, too. They're going to do it when they run their plashing game or run boot, get them loose in the flat, create some catch and run opportunities. But he can play in the slot. He can play as your boundary X wide receiver. Where now he has a similar skill set to Mike Evans, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, one player I comped him to, and, and that's because I played against him at the college level and the pro level, is Bicycle Burris. Because what he can do is the boundary X wide receiver. Yeah. You know, he can outmuscle defensive backs to the point of attack. He can create vertical separation. He can win on end breakers on the deep dig route that breaks between 12 and 15 yards. Um, he's got a great catch radius. He can be isolated inside the red zone as well. To the backside of three yeah. run, run slant or fade. Just tell him with the line of scrimmage. We're going to run a slant or fade. You know it's coming. You got to stop. Uh, you know, a rare talent. Because really what he is, he's a, he's a guy who's a tight end body in the traits of a wide receiver. So yeah. it opens up multiple possibilities. You know, when the, you can run the heavy 12 personnel and be your move tight end. You can run 11 personnel, which basically looks like 10 personnel with him on the field now. <laughs> really, 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 you're dictating to the defense. So what are you going to do when we have 12 in the field? If you have 12 in the field and don't have a matchup for this young man, then we're going to keep going to him. You know, so are you going to play base? Probably not. You're probably going to play, bring your sub in when Kyle Pitts is in the field. That's an open up run game opportunities for a team. That we know the new head coach in, in Atlanta, that's going to be pretty balanced. It might even be a little run heavy at times because they're going to yeah. set up Matt Ryan at this stage of his career, you know, more high percentage throws, more scheme throws down the field. With Kyle Pitts, uh, like we said, just completely opens up your game plan because the matchability, all three levels of the field, can produce after the catch, can stretch you vertically, and can win one on ones. Now, that's an offense now. If you look at their skill talent, that can be a tough matchup, just depending on how structured they're going to be under the new head coach as well. Yeah, Julio, Pitts, Ridley, uh, the running backs that they've got there because they got some. I mean, Mike Davis, I still, I still think you know, is a good player. Like, 
that's a tough offense to stop, not to mention they've got five former first-round picks on the offensive line, a former MVP quarterback, a, an offensive system that's proven. That's tough, man. I wouldn't want to be a, a defensive coordinator in uh, in the NFC South. I think Aaron Glenn got out at just the right time. Just saying. <laughs> Uh, man, but we re- we really appreciated having you, Matt. This was a blast. Um, you're one of the best follows in all of football media for people oh, that want to learn the game. And and at, at at their core, I think football fans love learning football, which is which is why I, I very much enjoy your work. You know, you when I was at NFL Network for five years, uh, you know, one of the the key things that we like to emphasize there was like don't don't treat the audience as stupid. Believe that they know what you're talking about. And that's what I've always loved about everything you did is you believe that the audience knows what you're talking about and you make it uh, easily translatable to people so they do know what you're talking about. And it's, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for everything you do. I appreciate it. But I'll tell you what, I, you know, I learned that from someone else. You know, no one has created football on their own. So I owe a lot of that to the coaches I've played for. Even going back to Jim Cove, my high school coach at Glenbar West here in the Chicago area, you always learn from someone, right? You can still learn. The greatest thing I've done is coach at the high school level. I've been an IC Catholic for six years now. And just to learn to spread offense, because I never saw that as a play. You know, yeah. I'll be honest, my freshman year, I went to Iowa as a quarterback, okay? So my freshman year, I was a scout team quarterback. And that was under Hayden Fry. I was old school. I had a red jersey on. It did not matter. Those guys would bury me. And, you know, <laughs> I remember simulating in Iowa State running the triple option. You know, you run a triple option against 22-year-old seniors and you're 18 years old. It was long. Good luck. Week. It was a long week, but the point is I never saw the spread. Now, we saw a little bit when Drew Brees was at Purdue. And we did not play well that week, I'll tell you right now, against Drew and that Purdue team when they went to the Rose Bowl. That was empty. That was spread. That was bubble screens. That was all coming into the Big Ten at that time. Um, so for me to coach at the high school level, to understand offensive line play more, to understand the quarterback position more, to understand RPOs and the conflict defenders and how to cut numbers in the box, that was all new to me. It really was. So, again, I learned that from someone else. And I think it's a great thing about this game. I think it's a great thing about social media in our business right now is you can learn from people. I follow a ton of coaches. I learn from high school coaches all over the country right now and guys in our business who are looking at things with a different angle. You know, we're all in this together. We're all collaborative on it. But you can always learn from each other something you might see. Maybe it's a technique. Uh, maybe it's a drill. I love studying drills on, on Twitter because there's – there's there's new ways to teach. There's new ways to develop young players that I coach at the high school level. So I've always been appreciative of that. And it took me it took me time, guys. When I first started, I was writing. Uh, when I first started, I was at grad school at DePaul in Chicago. I was writing for the Chicago Sun Times in a paper mm-hmm. called the Washington Examiner, which doesn't even exist anymore. And I was using our terminology from Greg Williams. It was like Tiger Ace. Um, yeah. You know, no one knew what I was talking about. So that was a lesson for me. To understand that I, you know, some of this terminology, you know, you, I have no idea. And I see it now on Twitter sometimes. Or sometimes I don't exactly understand what they're talking about. So it took me time to understand. That, like you said, you understand that people are smart. You still have to present it in a format where people can learn from it and understand it. So that took me time as well. Just to understand the terminology that works, whether it's in, you know, doing a podcast or doing a matchup show or writing at ESPN in a way that people can learn from it. Because I agree with you. I think it is a teaching tool every time you go on that website. And there's great things to learn from. That's my favorite thing about you and your presentation is that you are a teacher at heart and you learn those lessons well because 
the way you're able to communicate is to me, again, having watched your career for a long time, very purposeful. And you continue, I think, to be one of the leaders there to push the edge to communicate in a way that people can understand. And we had, uh, I was lucky enough to have Robert Mays on a podcast earlier this yeah, year. And Robert is the same way. He's very introspective about how he said, I spent a lot of time this year thinking about how I wanted to talk about the game. Mm -hmm. And when you have that focus and you have that lifelong learning bent that teachers bent teachers are learners and learners are teachers that's a really powerful combination and it comes together with your experience and and the fact that you've still got your hand in it and that you still want to learn and all those things come through in your work which is why you're absolutely one of my favorites is because you don't try and overwhelm people you're always trying to teach people and you're you're reacting to the folks who are reading and listening and learning and saying was that right was it too much how do I adjust that? And and you're at a, a very fine point, I would say, of expertise right now. So I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us tonight and 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 being gracious with that. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I really do. That means a lot to me. Um, and, you know, I've told people before, working with Greg Cosell at Matchup, uh, and mm -hmm. we have ex, we have ex-coaches, ex-scouts who work with us on that, on that show. It's like a graduate course in football. So I'm still learning as yeah. well. I mean, I really am still learning as well. Uh, from the guys in that building. And that's been very beneficial to me as well. Um, but that's the thing. You, you never stop learning, right? Never. Yeah. And the good news, you're on the ground floor for all the stuff that's going to be in the NFL in 10 years because all right. that spread stuff, that all that spread stuff you saw for the first time against Drew Brees – well, that came from a, a that came from Dennis Erickson, who was at Purdue, or no, he was at Wyoming, and the coach from Wyoming picked it up from Dennis Erickson and, and took it from Purdue, and Dennis Erickson got it from Jack Elway when they was at San Jose State, and Jack Elway got it from uh, Granada Hills High School when his son John played there under Jack Newmeyer, and they invented the spread there. So, in twenty years, whatever you're seeing there at IC, we're going to yeah. see on Sundays. So. Feel free to let us know what, what's going on down there, what, what wild stuff you find out. I'll tell you what. You know, the great thing about IC is that we play – we're a smaller school. You know, we only have about 360 students. So when we come to state playoff time, we play um, in a lower class in Illinois. There's eight classes in Illinois. We're usually three or four A. So we will go down south and out in western, western part of the state. We will play double wing. If you're not ready to play against a double wing, it is a long <laughs> you're day. You're ready to defend, counter, and superpower, and play action flat seven when you're least expecting it. Uh, that is tough. This year we played St. Ignatius. Now, obviously, we didn't have a fall season. We played a spring season. We played St. Ignatius, Kyle Catholic team, and they run the beer. Okay? So <laughs> if you're not ready for inside and outside beer, you will get gas. Yeah. yeah. All it takes is one. You can play 50 straight plays of that perfectly. It takes one where you don't squeeze on the inside beer and that thing is gone. It's out the gate. Yeah. You got to pick one, up those one that game, uh... But it, it was a battle. And that's the great thing about playing at a smaller level. You see the spread. You see 21 personnel. You see 12. You see double wing. You'll see single wing. You'll see the beer. You'll see the bone. So you see everything. And it makes for great football because every every in the state playoffs, every week's you know, a different challenge. Yeah. So it's, it's a blast. I love it. Oh, man. I can't imagine a better challenge. Or no wonder you're there at 942 at night on a Tuesday. I'll just say that. That's the life of a high school football coach is, is 
A lot of long hours there, Matt, but we we appreciate you coming on. Uh, This was a blast. We'll have to have you on again soon. I'd love to do it again, guys. Thank you very much. And with that, EJ, why don't we call it an episode? That was a great talk with Matt. Uh, Hopefully he'll be back soon. Uh, One of the best in the business, easily. Uh, You and I have both followed his work since before we were even doing this, so having him on the show was, was just a fantastic dream come true for both of us. Um, I, I I think that was the perfect capper for this show. Before we get out of here, though, what are you working on and uh, what are you excited about coming up in the world of EJ Snyder? Yeah, it's divisional previews for bootleg for the most part. A um, couple other smaller projects floating around. We'll see if they come to fruition, but really it's diving into the divisional previews. We did these as... I don't want to say filler last year, but it was like, what should we do? It's the whole off season. We're like, we'll talk about every team and all the divisions <laughs> and everything they did. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. It turned out to be tremendously educational. And I think set us up, set me up for sure with a better basis for the league. I've always followed the draft, but um, going through every team's roster and every team's free agent edition, every team's coaching situation, really set me up for the NFL season in a way that I've never done before and gave me such a good understanding of who was on each team, where the weaknesses were, you know, where they'd be. I remember us talking about Arizona last summer and it was like, man, they have a ton of depth, you know, they have a ton of talent at the top level. But once you get through that crust, there's a lot of places in their rosters where the verticals don't look as good. And sure enough, had a couple of key injuries early on and, and they struggled and it's that kind of work that sets you up for that kind of analysis. So that's really what's next. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of fun and it's incredibly valuable. So we're going to be diving into that after this. And that's, that's largely where I'm focused. Um, and then we're talking about some fun stuff. We're talking about dates during the season, games we might go to things that we're going to be able to do to interact with fans because fully vaccinated now. So the ability to, you know, jump on an airplane is, is not quite so intimidating and, and go see an NFL game and say, hey, if you're in town, come see us. You know, we'll have a table. We'll be at a bar or whatever. Um, we really wanted to do that last year. We, we kind of felt like you guys did that uh, we got robbed of that. Um, and we're looking forward to it. So we're we're making some plans. We'll definitely let everybody know um, as as much ahead of time as we can. Uh, if we're going to be in a city or at a game so that uh, if you're around, you have a chance to come out, we'd love to see you. Um, but that's really exciting. And again, folks back in even just pads and shells doing off-season workout, starting to feel like football again. I know it's somebody put up a thing this week on Twitter that said only 16 more Sundays without NFL football. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I don't want to skip all of summer and is camping it, is it and really cookouts. Is it really that few? Is it that few already? I didn't check the math. I'm just saying. Oh, my um, God. So, yeah, it feels like we got a lot of time coming up. Like we're just, you know, sort of capping out of spring and, and heading towards summer. But at the same time, you and I are looking at schedules for the fall and, and we're talking about the divisional preview. That's going to take us the next two months, uh, you know, one a week, eight weeks. And um, I don't know. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun. It's a reset. We're, we're starting over. The calendar's kind of turned with the draft and the offseason. But um I, doing this every week is is always a good time and then we're going to have some live events throughout the summer where we do bootleg drafts uh for underdog and we invite fans to draft with us or against us uh in little contests that they have 
do some giveaways. So just a lot going on um, all over the place. Uh, still going to be fleshing out the guest roster when we can. Uh, just a, we just feel super. I feel super lucky. I feel amazingly lucky to have fans that care about what we do, um, and just a place to sort of share our ideas. And people have resonated to that, and and we're just really really fortunate so we're in a good spot and lots of good content to come what do you got going i know you've got some big ones brewing yeah so a i did absolutely echo your sentiment we get to talk about football for a living and that's an amazing career uh and i am going to be catching up on my travel per se because i didn't do any travel last year for obvious reasons and so I, you know, I just turned 30 last week and I was like, you know, I missed the entire last year of my 20s and I didn't get to do anything because the world was crazy. So I'm going to make my 30th year the best year I can. I'm going to travel to as many NFL games as I can. So I'm going to be on the road a lot this season and you'll be there with me for a lot of that as well. You know, we're planning on going to Bears Rams week one down here in my neck of the woods in L.A., and then I got a big trip that I'm planning, which seems like it's definitely going to happen. So I feel like I can talk about it now where I'm going to six games in 15 days. L.A., Dallas, Cincy, New England. I'll be there when Tom Brady gets to go back to New England. And then I got a week to drive down to meet our buddy Craig in Kansas City. And hopefully you'll be there too for Bills at Kansas City. And then I'm flying back on the red eye that night because I got to catch Raiders Chargers back at SoFi the next day. So... I'm going to be in a whole bunch of cities. Again, L.A., Dallas. I'll probably stop in Memphis, Nashville, Louisville, Cincy, Cleveland, Scranton. If we got any Scranton. I've been looking at hotels in Scranton on the way to the New England Not that far from the place of my birth. I'm I'm going to hit New York City. I'm going to hit Baltimore, D.C. I'm going to stop off at my favorite distillery on planet Earth, the Virginia Distillery Company. On the way back to the Kansas City game, I'll hit St. Louis. Uh, Keep an eye out on the on my twitter on my instagram and i'll kind of have like a full schedule of where i'm going to be this season uh and ej is going to join me for as much of that as he can but you know he's got kids and a family and life commitments that that he that he gets to have and and so he'll be there for a few games uh but i'm going to be in a lot of different cities coming to a city near you pretty soon here so i'll i'll keep you guys apprised of my schedule and and we'll meet, to, we'll meet up. We'll have a beer. We'll have some barbecue. We'll do something. It'll be fun. I think it's going to be a great season. Uh, a new dawn is rising for the Bootleg Football Podcast, and I personally can't wait. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for making this possible, for one. Thank you to Underdog for helping to make it possible as well. We couldn't do it without them. And uh, we'll be back in a few days starting these division-by-division division previews, the mother of all off-season content. So hope you'll join us for that. And until then, later. Yeah.